Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of All In. I am the Ultra Eric 64. And I am Seth Rattle and Roll. We've got a lot of cool things to talk about in this week's news drop, but hey, man, are you feeling okay? Yeah, I'm feeling great. Why wouldn't I be? We've got a lot to celebrate this week. I mean, heck, our top five is a celebration of Rare's 35th anniversary, and we're counting down the best games of their Nintendo years. That is true. Now that you mention it, we're also bringing the folks at home another retrospective, this time on a legendary Super Nintendo game that is celebrating its 25th birthday this week, Chrono Trigger. That's going to be awesome. But of course, we've also got an indie showcase for you guys in this week's game, Downwell, a game about falling down a dangerous well of bats and frogs. <clears throat> um, uh, hey, uh, Seth, are you sure nothing happened to me last week? <laughs> yep, very sure. Yep, all good. <laughs> Intro time. Uh, it's time to go all in. Another lovely August week, another week into the pun ban month. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to test that again. So, just in case, that's probably wise. Yeah, <laughs> don't want to poke that bear. That's that's fair. Or you know, poke that frog. Do what? Um, huh? No, nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, it's also an exciting week of multiple anniversaries. I mean, as we sort of talked about in the intro, <laughs> as we've alluded to already, <laughs> we're, we are this week celebrating the 35th anniversary of Rare. We are celebrating the 25th anniversary of Chrono Trigger. And next week, we're going to be celebrating the 36th anniversary of you. <laughs> yes, yes. This coming Wednesday is going to be the 36th anniversary of Eric. <laughs> uh, I'm a year older than rare. Uh, hey, don't worry about it. Don't, don't try not to think too hard about it. <laughs> well, I did go out this past week and I did, I guess, get myself a couple little early birthday presents. Nice. Uh, so what I've been doing over this past week, I mentioned last week that I'd started playing Carrion. I did finish Carrion. And I don't want to talk too much about it because I know, Seth, you're still playing it. You're hopefully close to beating it yourself. Yeah, I think I'm pretty close, but yeah, I'm still playing it. So yeah, maybe we'll have a little conversation on that in the near future. But also, uh, after talking about last episode, we talked a lot about Mario Kart in our last episode. And man, did it mm. really get me wanting to play some Mario Kart. So I have done quite a bit of that in this past week reinforcing the fact that yes that game's really good yes the game's so amazing and it, it had been a little while since i'd put any real time into it but man you go back to it and it's just as good if not better than you remember it but another little thing that i picked up for myself was a first party nintendo game i didn't get the chance to play when it initially came out so i in this past week have finally been able to start yoshi's crafted world aha what do you think? Uh, just from the few worlds that I've played, I will, man, I will give it this. The level aesthetic is 
among the best I've ever seen. Oh, top notch. Just in terms of setting up a visual style, it is insane. Like it's so, so detail oriented and so impressive. And if you've ever played a Yoshi game, I mean, you've got the Yoshis, you've got the flutter jump, you've got the eggs, all of it comes back. But very interested in jumping back into the game. And, you know, I I feel like I have to 100% just about every first party Nintendo game. I I have. Yeah, I have heard a couple things about this one. So we'll see. But but as of right now, I'm having quite a bit of fun with it. I I liked the game overall. I had a good time with it. I'm, I'm really similar to you. I feel some sort of weird, like, imagined pressure to 100% first party Nintendo games as well. So I did wind up 100%ing that one. But when you go for 100%, the game, my only real issue with the game, the game does a lot of things really amazingly, but it is there's a lot of padding to the game if you want to 100% it. There is, and I'm, I'm already starting to see that. Yeah, and I mean, if you're a normal person <laughs> and you don't necessarily <laughs> care about stuff like that, you're going to you can just go straight to the end, have a good time. But yeah, if you're somebody who's trying to fully complete the game, you're going to wind up replaying each of the game's levels like at least three or four times. And it winds up making a 15-ish hour game into about a 40-hour game. So Well, at least you've yeah. got pretty levels to look at the entire time. Oh yeah, certainly. The game does do a lot of things right, though. I did come away enjoying that game overall. But, you know, like we like we sort of touched on previously on the show... It would just be nice for them to just go back and port Woolly World. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> I did start watching the Transformers War for Cybertron trilogy on Netflix. I've I've always been a really big Transformers fan. Obviously, given my age that we've now mentioned, I was born right around the time the Transformers, you know, really started to explode. Right. And it was a, a huge part of, of my childhood. So pretty close to, I've thought quite often about getting a Transformers theme tattoo. I probably still will someday, but I will say if you're a fan of the Transformers, the War for Cybertron series, from what I've seen of it so far, it's interesting. Some of the characters feel like they act a little out of character just based Mm. on their traditional portrayals. But in terms of, the visuals, the characters honestly look like the toys just brought nice. to life, like proportions and all that they legit look like CGI versions of the toy models in many respects. So Transformers was initially conceived essentially as a 30 minute toy commercial anyway. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so I think this is definitely going to to move a few figures come holiday season. I'm seeing here that the series was produced by Rooster Teeth. Uh, that I didn't see. It's uh, wow. It presents itself as a Netflix anime series. Yeah, they've certainly done a couple of those now. An unpopular opinion. I don't think Castlevania is very good on Netflix. Really? I really don't think it's good. I really liked it. That's surprising. Well, we might have to have a discussion about that at some point. Yeah. Voltron's phenomenal. If you haven't seen Voltron, talking about Netflix anime series, if you haven't seen the Voltron Legendary Defender series on Netflix, that is legit, like, up there, like, just under 
Avatar The Last Airbender for me. Like, it's phenomenal. Holy cow. It's phenomenal. Wow. Yeah, you speaking of Avatar, that that's something that my wife and I have been doing just about every night with dinner. We watch at least one or two episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender, and man, what a phenomenal show that is. Easily the best animated program of this century. It, yeah, it's it's certainly up there, man. It's it's in that conversation. I, I absolutely love that show. Uh, so introducing her to that has been cool. And Transformers is on Netflix. Voltron Legendary Defenders on Netflix. Avatar The Last Airbender is on Netflix. So if you get a chance, check those out. But what about you, Seth? What have you been up to for this past week? Uh, a couple things. Nothing too crazy in terms of video games. Uh, I did promise last week on the show that I would return this week with my full findings from the Lego Cross Super Mario kit. (laughs) Yeah, you sent me some pictures. (laughs) Yes, Uh, which I have finally blessedly received in the mail and have uh, constructed and played with. And it's cool. I, I like it. It's interesting. It's not the sort of thing that I think I'm going to... I really like the figures themselves. I really like having my little Lego Mario and my little, you know, enemy characters, my Bowser Jr. and stuff like that. But in terms of building and playing with the courses, I think it's a little less appealing to adults. But what they've done for kids, like if I were, say, eight, nine, ten years old, I'd be eating this alive right now. Well, there's a lot of small pieces, so be careful when you're trying to eat them. Well, yeah. Yeah, PSA, don't stick Legos in your mouth. Yes. But <laughs> but they, they've done some pretty interesting things integrated with the smartphone slash tablet app, which I actually didn't realize coming into it because when they were first sort of revealing this initiative, this sort of product line, I was like, well, this is kind of lame. You're just, you're just going to be like getting straight to the end of the course. Like, what's the fun of that? Like, there's no real incentive. But there actually is kind of an incentive because... The entire thing does tie to a smartphone app, which doubles as an instruction manual, like a very detailed instruction manual. Now, instead of having to actually look through a paper instruction manual, you've got actual 3D models that you can turn and see exactly how they want you to build it and everything. It's actually really cool. Really similar to the Labo instructions, if you guys are familiar with the Labo kits. Mm -hmm. Very similar to that. So that's neat, but also that's also the way that the via Bluetooth, the Lego Mario figure itself connects to the device, connects to the app. And so when you're earning coins and playing through these created stages that you've built yourself, it's all tracked within the app. Now, while there isn't any sort of practical application for the coins, it's not as if you're buying or unlocking anything in the app it's it is kind of cool like there it just adds a little extra layer of interactivity there are also things like various challenges like uh spend this much time in an underwater course and of course you're building these yourself with blue pieces that the mario figure identifies as being water pieces so it's it's actually kind of interesting and it's it's a little bit deeper than you might expect So for kids, I think it's going to be really cool. I think kids are going to have a blast with this. And then for adults, like adult Nintendo fans like you or I, I think it's a pretty cool little thing to have on your shelf. And, you know, to be fair, they've done some pretty impressive stuff with the figures themselves. Like Mario, for those that don't know, he's sort of like completely electronic. He's powered by batteries. He's got like LED 
powered eyes and a little panel on his chest. It's it's super creepy when the figure is off, by the way. <laughs> and you see Mario's dead eyes. You stare into the Mario abyss. Yeah, you sent me that gif when you did that. And I was like, oh, that's unsettling. <laughs> it is. But they've added some like cute little personality quirks where you turn it on. He's like, Lego Mario time. And you, you pull, if you actually, the way you access the battery panel, you have to pull off his like pants block. And if you <laughs> do that while the figure's on, he'll be like, Mamma Mia. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> that's, good. That's fantastic. Just little things like that. Like if you, if you lay the figure down for more than like 30 seconds, it'll start snoring. Just a li- like some of that Nintendo personality, you know? is totally present in the Lego Mario piece itself. So really cool, really fun stuff, easy to build. I didn't have, I think it maybe took me an hour and a half or so to work through the entire starter kit. I sort of laid it on my table, messed around with it, had fun. And then I wound up, you know, putting the figures themselves on my shelf. So am I going to continue getting it? I I don't know. I, I'll probably grab some more of these character blind bags because I do like these a lot, but I don't know if I'll buy any more of the sets. But I will say, I think I said this when we first kind of kind of talked about this, I don't think that this is going to be the end of Nintendo's collaboration with Lego. I'm sitting here, I'm like, bring on the Donkey Kong set, bring on the Zelda set, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, Well, it does seem like they have done some really unique things with it. It's not just the bricks themselves, they have made it very interactive. So uh, certainly I think that's going to be a massive selling point for people. Oh, it's already gotten very difficult to find both in store and online. Like I ordered all my stuff from the actual Lego.com store and they had a max allotment of three blind bags per customer. And when I went back after receiving my initial set, I was like, okay, I want to buy some more blind bags. So when I went back onto the shop, it was already sold out. Like you can't buy Mm. any more blind bags. So uh, seems like it's already selling quite well. And especially as we come into the holiday, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of Lego Mario under the Christmas tree. You're probably not wrong about that. So just one more avenue for Nintendo to make all the money. But in terms of, yeah, in, in, in the realm of video games, not a whole lot. I did play a bit of Carrion, uh, enjoying that. Have some thoughts about that. We'll probably, once I finish it, we'll circle back and talk a lot more about that. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing super crazy on my end. I did, <laughs> uh, begrudgingly and, and in my shame, I did wind up buying a copy of Skyrim on the switch. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I did this. It was on QuakeCon sale. It was half off. I was weak. <laughs> it's like, I, I had an itch. You got to catch them all, all the different versions of Skyrim on all the different devices. I honestly, I might own Skyrim legitimately on almost everything it's available for all like 500 platforms. Uh, I, I, again, I, I have no explanation for myself. I just had the itch. I wanted to get back in. I wanted to have Skyrim running in the palm of my hand. And now that I have it, I'm pleased. (laughs) Well, do you have the Nokia engage version? (laughs) I f- Dude, I don't even know if you're joking. That's the sad thing. The sad <laughs> thing is I would not be shocked one bit if that was an actual thing. <laughs> no, as much respect as I have for how hard those devices are to kill, they don't really run hmm. anything more comprehensive than something like Centipede. 
They, they would find a way to make Skyrim work. Skyrim runs on like Alexa and refrigerators. So they'd have to downgrade Skyrim to like some weird gauntlet dark legacy knockoff. If Todd Howard thinks it'll sell another copy, he'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's about all I got. Are you ready to get in some news? Let's talk about the goings on in the video game world. So obviously we have mentioned Zeldathon several times over the past couple of weeks, just wrapped up here on the 12th earlier this week for a final total of a whopping $71,302.56 benefiting direct relief over the course of this five day side quest marathon. Man, it was awesome. Well done guys. Well done. Loved it. Love tuning in. We did uh, We did actually, during the <laughs> art block, <laughs> one of the many art blocks. Yeah, about $50 of that did come from us. That's true. So, you know, we, we did, we, you know, I, I was going to end up donating anyway, but I was like, you know what? Let's donate in the name of the podcast. We, we've been shouting them out enough. And, uh, and it, we definitely wanted to, you know, throw our hat into the ring and, and support Director Leaf. So decided to do so during a late night, art block six lona's art block where she was essentially as a donation incentive she was like hey i'm taking requests and (laughs) essentially if you did a character request if you donated 25 or more you could you could submit a character and that character was entered into a pool of characters so two two characters in that pool would be mashed together and she would then draw them and the character that i submitted when making our donation was tingle why 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 did you do that because it just seemed like the right thing to do. You know, I did I did think about doing Galarian Slowbro for obvious reasons. Oh yeah, yeah. But the the only reason that I didn't is because I was afraid that the design would get lost in the sauce. Oh, I could see that. If he were if he were to be mashed up with somebody else, so much of his design is in things like his arm and you know, so I, I didn't want to put undue pressure on it. I didn't want to risk it. Tingle was my second choice. And so Six Lona absolutely delivered. It ended up getting mashed up with Pietro, the weird clown sheep thing from Animal Crossing. And the uh, you can check out our social media if you'd like to see the sort of monstrosity that was birthed from that mashup, but it was great. Yeah. So As a matter of fact, I think we'll reshare that tomorrow. Sounds good. Yeah, you, you guys should, everybody should be made aware of this <laughs> abomination. <laughs> But uh, wonderful stuff there from Six Lona. Happy to donate. Happy to support the cause. Uh, what a fun show. Can't wait for the next Zelda-thon. Speaking of Zelda, actually, something that kind of came across the old desk this morning as I was sort of making my news rounds is Nintendo has registered new The Legend of Zelda-related trademarks that is just covering an extremely vast array of trademark classes. Everything from, like, toothpaste to like dinner plates, to of course, video games. So a company re-registering trademarks is not uncommon, of course, but this is notable for two reasons. A, just the the sheer amount of classes that they have sort of re-registered, and B, the fact that it is extremely similar to what they did with the Mario license last year in preparation for this year's 35th anniversary. So this could possibly imply that Nintendo is planning a large rollout for Zelda's 35th anniversary next year. Well, the obvious thing there would be Breath of the Wild 2 updates. and Oh, sure. But yes, uh, for a big 
anniversary like that. I mean, sure, go merch. Just merch everything. Zelda wallpaper, Zelda curtains, Zelda toilet paper. Let's go. Let's go crazy. I'm down. Yeah, and I mean, we're seeing things like we we talked about, like the Mario 35th anniversary Monopoly and Jenga and whatnot. And I think we're going to see stuff like that for Zelda as well next year. But in terms of video games, yeah, I do think Breath of the Wild 2 is going to release in spring 2021. We've talked about that previously on the show. I think that next year is probably going to be the year that we see some sort of version of Wind Waker and Twilight Princess. Now, if that manifests itself as a like triple pack of like Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, and Skyward Sword. Dude. That'd make me a happy man. Dude. <laughs> That's a whole other we could we could honestly make that a, a main topic just talking about that. But then yeah, add add to that, like maybe they maybe they have some more stuff up their sleeve. But yeah, I think I think next year is going to be really exciting if you're a Zelda fan. So some interesting news, kind of sad news coming out of Capcom this past week. The brand manager, executive producer of Street Fighter for the past 12 years, Yoshinori Ono, has left the company after almost 30 years. The first game he worked on with Capcom was Saturday Night Slam Masters. If you guys remember that little ditty from 1993. but. He was the one who helped bring Street Fighter 4, helped bring the Street Fighter franchise back, really, with Street Fighter 4, and had been the driving force behind the series for the past decade plus. But in a statement this past week, he was talking about the Capcom Pro Tour and about the issues associated with COVID and... For several paragraphs, just kind of talked about the Capcom Pro Tour, about Capcom 2020, and saying, you know, he appreciates the understanding of the fan base and everything. And then just almost out of nowhere in his statement says, and I'm quoting, I've been with the Street Fighter brand for a long time, experiencing good times, bad times, and even non-existent times. My heart is filled with appreciation to those players who've been giving warm and kind support on the brand, especially over the past decade or so, as all the activities on the Street Fighter brand regained sunshine and grew its liveliness. And now, after serving almost 30 years at Capcom, I am leaving the company in this summer. This means I will resign my position as the brand manager for Capcom's various titles, including Street Fighter. A little bit out of left field for some people and kind of a punch to the gut because I'm a big fighting game fan. So people like him, people like Harada from the Tekken series, people like Masahiro Sakurai of uh, Super Smash Brothers. These people in the FGC and the fighting game community are kind of like rock star figures for a lot of people. So it's, yeah. it's almost like seeing, you know, it's almost like seeing, you know, Kiss come out and say, you know what, we're done touring. Yeah. And I mean, Yoshinori Ono, if for those that don't know, and you might be familiar with him sort of without realizing it, because he would even get on stage at like E3 and had a very sort of boisterous, eccentric energy about Street Fighter and Capcom yeah. in general. Eccentric is really the best word. I mean, he even ends this statement that I quoted. He even ends the statement saying, quote, I regret that as the Street Fighter series executive producer, I wasn't able to do the Shoryuken together with you at each <laughs> event in 2020. So please allow me to shout as my closing statement in this message to you. And his message actually ends three, two, one. Shoryuken! That's awesome. So very indicative <laughs> of the type of person he was. Uh, I'm sure he's still going to be around in some respect, but uh, very, very big news out of the FGC 
that Yoshinori Odo stepping down as the head honcho of the Street Fighter franchise. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we certainly wish him all the best and we'll you know keep an eye on his career and see what he does next. I absolutely wish him all the best in whatever he does, whatever he chooses to do next. Yeah. But shifting gears a little bit, it hasn't ever been playable on a Nintendo platform. However, the Scott Pilgrim beat-em-up game that was available mm. for quite some time on the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, a phenomenal uh, beat-em-up, phenomenal game, indie game. Uh, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, you, to be honest, and maybe this is like high praise, maybe this is a little hyperbolic, but I, I'm sitting here thinking about this now that it's kind of been in the in the discussion this week. So uh, yeah, another anniversary, yet another anniversary. It's the 10th anniversary of that movie, Scott Pilgrim yep. versus the world came out in 2010. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's, I've been mulling it over. I really do that. That might be my favorite brawler of all time. It's fantastic. And it's got an amazing pixel art aesthetic that, and I know I do say this a lot on the show, but yes, it is. I, I, it's, I, bursting with personality absolutely every pixel every character on the screen feels lively feels like there's something behind it and the soundtrack by Anamanaguchi is just transcendent in terms of indie games so a much beloved game uh, especially within the genre so it made a lot of people really upset when the game got delisted mm-hmm. even Brian Lee O'Malley the creator of Scott Pilgrim But the reason we're talking about this is that Brian Lee O'Malley tweeted out Thursday night that Ubisoft had contacted him. And that was really all he said, is that Ubisoft has contacted him. And that essentially set the entire Scott Pilgrim fandom into a frenzy. Yeah, I mean, including including Edgar Wright, the director of the movie. Yeah. So not sure what any of that means. I will say... That Ubisoft Forward will be happening in a couple weeks in September. Yes. Yes. So there is a chance based on this that we could potentially get some news. Uh, I think a trailer might be a little might be a little much, but we may be looking forward to an announcement soon in regards to potentially that game coming back or possibly even a new game. And if it does, I would absolutely love to see the Scott Pilgrim game come to the Nintendo Switch. I think it'd be a good home for the beat-em-up. That would be perfect. I mean, you know, so much of these games, and Scott Pilgrim is no exception, is cooperative play. And the Switch is just, is the perfect house for cooperative games like this. And, you know, the, the, the folks who ended up making this game, they were employees at Ubisoft, but they went on to found Tribute Games, who, of course, is responsible for Mercenary Kings and Flint Hook, and they recently released Panzer Paladin. So <laughs> these are some talented folks. And um, it'd be cool if like Ubisoft sort of tapped that original team to come back and make a sequel. You know, never say never. I, I wouldn't be shocked one bit, though, if... So essentially, one of two things is happening here. It's either them approaching Brian Lee O'Malley and saying like, hey, actually, we were already working on this. Or them approaching Brian Lee O'Malley and being like, oh, hey, do you want to make this happen? <laughs> do you want to make enough noise, basically? And uh, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If, if it's the latter, 
if it's the if it's the thing where there has not actually been any work done yet in that front, then yeah, we're probably not going to see a trailer at Ubisoft Forward. But if it's something where the ball's already been rolling on that, and fans have been clamoring for this for some time, I mean, it's possible. It's certainly possible. I don't even remember what the reasoning was. I don't know if it was like a licensing issue. Because, I mean, to me, it seems like... I mean, Anamanaguchi is very vocal about wanting the game to be re-released. Brian Lee O'Malley, very vocal about wanting the game to be uh, re-released. Edgar Wright, who you have to assume... He's not the IP holder, of course, but you have to assume he could put you in contact with Universal for these rights. Uh, I mean... It just seems like all those puzzle pieces should fit together, you know? Yeah, it is a weird situation. So the fact that there might be a light at the end of this tunnel finally is is a nice little carrot on the stick for a lot of people. Yeah, potentially very exciting. We will see. Potentially it'll be soft forward, but we will see. If it happens, you are certainly in the right place to hear about it. So... A little strange news bit that we just had to cover this week during the show is a really interesting promotion oh, that yeah. Hellman's, yeah, Hellman's, yes, the mayonnaise people. This is so weird. Are ha- are throwing on inside of Animal Crossing: New Horizons? So it- it's actually really cool what they're doing here. Yeah, it just the way of doing it is so bizarre and extra. but essentially the plan is throughout next week i believe this starts on august 17th through august 22nd essentially hellman's is going to have like a hellman's island in animal crossing new horizons and the idea is your wasted food in the game which aka your spoiled turnips translates to real food in the real world so you will be able to visit hellman's island donate your spoiled turnips and each of these spoiled turnips will represent a real meal that Hellman's will be donating to the charity second harvest, which is Canada's largest food rescue charity. And they're doing this up to 25,000 meals for vulnerable communities across the country. I mean, it's great. I mean, good on Hellman's, you know, thank you for doing that, but wow, this has got to be one of the most unique video game promotional like in-game promotional events ever. It's it's bizarre. I mean, it, it's cool. It's a cool initiative, but man, is it bizarre. My first thought when I first read this, I'm like, okay, what are the logistics of this going to be like? And I actually have got the answer to those questions. So essentially what's going to happen is Hellman's Island will be open to visitors from 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Monday, August 17th until 12.15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday, August 22nd. In order to gain access to the island, you'll have to direct message Hellman's Canada on Twitter, which is at Hellman's Canada, to receive their personal dodo code, which will be shared on a first come, first served basis. So if they select you for this dodo code, you'll be provided with a 15 minute time slot to both to drop off your spoiled turnips. And you'll then, after you drop those turnips off, you'll have the opportunity to explore the rest of the island which includes Hellman's Farm <laughs> that they have created on their island. Uh, the Second Harvest Outdoor Kitchen. Uh, the Able Sisters Merch Shop, where they have custom Hellman's-inspired designs and merchandise that you can download. 
the resident services where you can check out the bulletin board for tips on how to be creative and make the most of what's in your fridge and reduce your food waste. And Ribbon Island. If you're feeling adventurous, guests can pole vault over to an island shaped like Hellman's iconic ribbon for a quick photo op. So yeah, that's a thing that's happening. I think I'm going to try. Like, I've got to check that out. It just seems so bizarre to be interesting. Just got to go to the mayonnaise island. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's just so weird. It's it's weird, yeah. And, and there's all sorts of, like, pictures, and I think they actually have a video on their Twitter that you can check out if you want to take part in this. It's, I mean, look, it's interesting. Well, what do you guys think? Do you guys think this is the weirdest thing you've ever seen in a Nintendo game? Let us know. Check us out on Facebook at All In. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. Let us know if you are going to try to visit the Mayonnaise Island in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Another thing we saw, we saw last week, we uh, talked about Braid Anniversary Edition because it was revealed at PlayStation's State of Play event. Mm -hmm. A little bit more news coming out of that event is Crash 4, It's About Time, has been leaked to be coming to the Nintendo Switch. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited about that. I mean, it's a mascot platformer. Nintendo, it, their bread and butter is mascot platformers. So despite how synonymous Crash is with the PlayStation brand, I still think it's going to be a good fit. But everything I've seen about the game, look, it looks so good. It looks very much like they're returning to the original trilogy style of gameplay, like hardcore. Like they're very much trying to evoke those old games. They are very much trying to go back to what, you know, because for many franchises, their first few games is how they are defined and crash since that initial trilogy has floundered a little bit. Right. And a lot of franchises have seen success going back to what made them a success in the first place. That was, you know, Mortal Kombat is a perfect example of that. So very happy to see Crash 4, it's about time, coming to the Nintendo Switch. If you haven't checked out the gameplay trailers, do, especially if you're a fan of the original trilogy, like myself, I think you'll be really, really excited about it. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the, it is worth noting the, the Switch announcement is not official yet, but I mean, it's kind of a foregone conclusion, to be honest. We already were sort of expecting it to happen, considering that both the Crash Bandicoot Insane trilogy and crash team racing are on available on the switch so there really was never any reason for this to not come to switch the way this leak sort of manifested itself was somebody was looking at the source code of the official games website and notated that sort of hidden in the code that there is actually a thing that has not been pushed to live yet to the site and that is a nintendo switch buying option now it's possible that maybe they copy pasted this from another website they have like Spyro or something like that. And, and it's just a holdover from that, that they sort of lazily hid possible. But I mean, <laughs> I, I think you can probably take this to the bank. I, I think eventually at some point next year, crash four is going to come to the switch. Yeah. Probably be a timed exclusive on the PlayStation four and five, but yeah, get ready for it. Switch owners. It is coming. Yep. An interesting thing that sort of has been happening over the past week or so with Nintendo on social media is that like people have sort of developed a habit, especially as we're kind of starved for Nintendo content right now. Everybody's sort of chomping at the bit for 
a Nintendo Direct for any sort of announcement from Nintendo regarding their first parties. Yes, we got Pikmin 3 Deluxe recently, but people want more. And so people have started to notate Nintendo's social media habits because of this. Well, that is not really going to work out for you very well anymore because Nintendo seems to be changing their social media presence pretty dramatically. And we've seen this with the now infamous Mario picture that everybody yeah. was so frustrated with this week. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, Nintendo posted a picture of Mario soaking up some sun rays in what appeared to be a very Super Mario Sunshine-esque environment. And it did throw a lot of people into a frenzy, wondering if this was potentially a teaser for Mario Sunshine 2, which Mario of course Sunshine it wasn't. confirmed. Yeah, exactly. Mario Sunshine confirmed. Flood backpack is coming back. Yeah. <laughs> Sunshine 2. Yeah, no, but well, it, it was, I'm pretty sure it was just an innocuous summer tweet, but whatever. But then in addition to that, they had a image of like one of the, one of the, uh, shy guys or, or, or the sniffets from paper Mario, the origami oh, yeah, yeah. king. And it, yeah. and it just said mood mood, you know, so they're, <laughs> you, you can tell they're trying to take kind of a more casual fun approach to their social media presence. And to reinforce that they have announced that they have created an entirely new social media presence, this time on Instagram, called Nintendo Inspired. Nintendo Inspired. And what this is, is it is, quote, your official Nintendo destination for hashtag Nintendo Inspired DIYs, lifestyle, fashion, and more to help level up your everyday life. So they, so far, have got a few posts on, the, on their Instagram page of, like, pins and a few DIY stuff some like fashion stuff on there. There's a few few posts, nothing too crazy, but this is the sort of thing that Nintendo would typically also have on their Facebook and Twitter feed. And now it seems like they're not going to. Now it seems like it's going to be relegated to Nintendo inspired. So kind of interesting to see them shake their stuff up like this. Well, a lot of brands, the, the, more, they, the more time they spend on social media are learning more and more that, I mean, yes, a lot of people are following you because of, the information that you're going to put out about your products. And a lot of people are interested in that information. However, as a brand, it is also important to have some fun, especially on social media, which is a very casual, very meme centric type of culture. And this was something that the Sonic the Hedgehog social media used to astounding effect. Like legitimately, Sonic the Hedgehog social media is probably the best video game social media on the planet, honestly. As a matter of fact, the guy who, the mastermind behind that just took a new position at Sega of Japan. So congratulations to him. Yeah, I saw that. Congrats. Yes. So more and more brands are realizing that, yes, you can have the serious stuff. You can release the trailers. You can drop information. But yeah, it's perfectly fine to just post stuff and have fun to interact with your fan base. That was something, that was the exact approach that I did when I was running my store. We were, I was incredibly successful with that store because of my approach to social media. Yes, we posted a lot of information about the store, but we were also posting a lot of fun stuff as well. So nice to see that a massive worldwide brand like Nintendo is kind of finally starting to come around on the fact that it's okay to have fun on Facebook and Instagram. So they do have to be careful, though, because people are going to take everything they post mm. as a potential <laughs> teaser. 
Oh, there's there's three seeds in a in Mario's watermelon. Half Life Three confirmed. confirmed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they do. They I mean everything Nintendo does is under the microscope right now. But I mean, I think I think Nintendo has got to start talking very very soon, especially with them presumably gearing up for Mario's 35th anniversary happening in less than a month now. Yes. We've got to start hearing about this stuff. I mean, I think August is a month that Nintendo really kind of needs to start opening the doors and, and letting the fans in a little bit. So yep. we'll see. We will see. You'll certainly hear all about it here on All In. A <laughs> uh, couple of quick headlines to sort of get through here at the end of the news bit. I wanted to talk about this really quickly <laughs> because I was sort of futzing around on the eShop the other night. You and I were talking. Yeah. Just kind of hanging out. And I'm I'm looking at the upcoming releases and I noticed that something called RPG Maker, RPG Maker coming to Switch on September 8th with presumably no fanfare or acknowledgement at all from anybody. No, like nobody's covering this, which is insane. Yes, RPG Maker is something that has been around for a very very long time, but the fact that it's coming to the Switch is a big deal. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with RPG Maker, it is very much what it says on the tin. However, you may not realize there are some very famous games that were crafted with this engine, with this toolbox. Yeah, games like To the Moon and Hylix kind of, you know, indie RPGs that were made using this toolkit. And this is RPG Maker MV which is just kind of the one of the more you know recent versions of the game. Coming to Switch, though, is, is a pretty big deal, and I was actually looking into this because what I was curious about is if there was going to be an ability to share your creations on Switch, and it looks as if there will be. Yeah. So, I mean, this has got the potential to be pretty major. I mean, having fan-made RPGs available to you for download on Switch could be a big deal. Yeah. Especially the type of platform that the Nintendo Switch is with its portability. This, I think, is a a big deal just because, I mean, just imagine being able to go somewhere and download a new RPG from RPG Maker. And then, I mean, just to be able to do that wherever you are and be able to play it wherever you are. Well, and being able to make it. Wherever you are. I I mean, if you're the type of person who is a fan of stuff like Mario Maker, who does have that sort of creative itch and you do want to make your own games, to have this robust toolkit to make a full-on RPG in the palm of your hand on your plane ride or whatever, I mean, that's pretty incredible. So this could potentially be huge. But yeah, I, I found it strange that this is coming and nobody seems to be talking about it. Exactly, yeah. And if you haven't heard about like games like To the Moon or Hylix or any of the other wonderful games that have been created, the community for RPG Maker has produced some really, really interesting products. I mean, games that are very much on par with a lot of the uh, famous indie games that are being released these days. So if you're an RPG fan, it's something you definitely need to look into. And we did kind of mention the anniversaries. We did mention my birthday coming next week on Wednesday, but it looks like Netflix and the video game world are getting me something for my birthday. Thank you guys. (laughs) So sweet. Yeah. We've already talked a little bit about Netflix in terms of the anime shows like Avatar The Last Airbender and Voltron and Transformers War for Cybertron. But on Wednesday, April 19th, they're releasing the first part of their high score 
documentary series, which is going to, according to Netflix, trace the history of classic video games featuring insights from the innovators who brought these worlds and characters to life. It's going to be a documentary series about kind of the golden age of gaming through, I believe, the 80s and 90s. And it's going to be narrated by none other than Mario himself, Charles Martinet. So very excited to start watching that next Wednesday. Uh, I, you guys can probably expect to hear quite a bit about the series from us next week. Yeah, yeah, definitely be checking that out. Looking forward to it. And lastly, if you are a Mario Kart player, the Mario Kart North American Open, just like ARMS North American Open was last weekend, the Mario Kart North American Open is this weekend. It started yesterday, the 14th, and it is going all the way through the weekend, through Sunday. So if you got the game, jump on there, jump online, find the tournament in the online suite, and jump into the North American Open on Mario Kart. Go have some fun, win some races. Yeah, always cool. I mean, we talked about the arms open they had and they, they've certainly done plenty of this stuff so cool to see nintendo continuing to support these games all right well that's it for the news this week seth how about we get around to playing some video games i'm down well we played katana zero a few weeks ago for our indie showcase and we liked it so much we decided to go back to devolver digital this time we're checking out their top-down shooter their really top-down shooter down well <laughs> So Downwell is a game that actually I have quite a bit of experience with, uh, maybe a bit of an understatement. Yeah, you were the one who actually turned me onto the game. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of this game. I have followed it kind of since it, it first came out back on PC in like 2015. I picked it up sort of on a whim. It was recommended to me by a friend who knew that I really like Spelunky. And, you know, roguelikes aren't super my thing, but the, the roguelikes that I like, I really like. And Downwell is sort of a roguelike. It, it is a procedurally generated game, but there's certainly some more nuances to, to it than that. But yeah, I picked it up on PC and I think I spent somewhere in the avenue of like 60 to 70 hours with the game on PC. God. And I've got it on my phone. I've got it on my PS4. I've got it on my Vita. And now I've got it on my Nintendo Switch. I have it on basically everything you can possibly have it on i'm just a little bit of a fan of downwell nice you need to get it on your refrigerator <laughs> the second i can do i'll play skyrim and downwell on my fridge <laughs> it would not <laughs> surprise me at all but yeah let's get into it so downwell is a again procedurally generated top-down shooter and when you say top-down you mean top-down i'm not saying isometric view i mean that literally the premise of the game is that you are falling down a well. All of your movement for the vast majority of the game is completely downward movement. Yeah, when you think of top-down shooters, you think of games like Galaga, you think of uh, you think of games like Raiden Trad and Ikaruga, but this very much flips that entire idea on its head, almost quite literally. Yeah, it's like the inverse of that idea, really. Yeah. And in a lot of those top-down shooters, a lot of arcade shooters like this, you are at the bottom of the screen shooting at enemies that are coming at you from mostly the top of the screen. And this is just a really, really interesting, really unique take on that genre because the game very much does what it says on the tin. The game is called Down Well. You are 
quite literally falling down a well, but it is a very unique well. Hmm. Yes, indeed. With many different levels and uh, a lot of interesting things happening in that well, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the whole sort of gameplay hook of this game is that your character, who apparently I learned about five minutes ago, is canonically named Well Taro. That's so great. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and uh, just as a quick aside, because it's kind of a fun little story. The reason I learned, I, I was on the game's Wikipedia page and the beginning sentence of it here on Wikipedia is saying players control a curious man named Well Taro. And I'm like, wait, hang on, what? Because the game has no real lore or story or spoken or dialogue or really anything like that. There's, uh, I mean, like, with the exception of, like, the shopkeeper, I don't think there's even any written words in the game. But for this character to have a name was really interesting. So I decided to check the source, and it comes from this indie game called, like, Indie Pogo. And it's, like, a fighting <laughs> game, and they wanted to include the character from Downwell, so they contacted the creator of the game, Ojiro Fumoto, asking for this character's name for like the character select screen, right? And yeah, the canonical name of this character is Weltaro. <laughs> but Weltaro is equipped with really one major ability, and that is a pair of gun boots. Right, so as you're falling down this well, you can fire beneath you from your shoes. And like a lot of top-down shooters, you have a few different weapons at your disposal. You'll start with a machine gun, but throughout the course of the game, you can find these caverns that are off to the left or the right of the screen. And in a lot of these caverns, you can find weapon power-ups. And a lot of these weapons, you can get a lot of classics, like uh, laser blasts, like shotgun, like something they call the, the puncher, which is kind of a slightly wider version of the machine gun. You can get a spread shot right. called triple, and then you can get uh, a, an interesting gun you can direct called the noppy noppy i love the noppy <laughs> i i don't know i might come around on it i'm not a big fan of the noppy. i love the triple i love that spread shot i love it too and, and you know what's interesting this is you know and this is something that i'm that i'm definitely going to focus on as we're talking about this game this is a game that is all about split second decisions that is the sort of core of downwell is the familiarity that the player gets with the game, with its systems, with everything, like all of its moving pieces, kind of in concert with the player's ability to make split-second decisions and decide what is best for your run. And going along with that, the weapon that you'll be using, there are definitely weapons that are better for different situations. But uh, so, yeah, the, the sort of... The sort of flow of downwell, again, like we said, you're constantly moving in a downward motion towards the bottom of this well, going through uh, four different, I guess, worlds comprising of three levels each. And the overall structure of these is the same, but they'll have, they'll throw little hooks into it. So when you start out, the very first world is very simple and it's got kind of a simple spread of enemies. It's got these kind of floating slime creatures it's got bats on the wall it's got like frogs jumping around you okay yeah i'm good sorry i just had something in my throat sorry i bet keep going but one of the things that this game utilizes in terms of its readability that that is cool and this and this flows into a lot of different elements of the game but also into the enemy design is its color palette 
The game has an extremely simple color palette. It really only uses three colors, the default being black, white, and red. And so there are certain enemies that are highlighted in red that cannot be sort of stepped on with your gun boots. You have to shoot them. Otherwise, you will take damage. You should try to stomp on as many enemies as you can. Uh, Because I've learned playing the game that if you just blindly fire beneath you, you'll run out of bullets and then you'll kind of wind up at the mercy of the game itself. Yes, because the bullets do help with your overall movement. It, of course, when you fire from your gun boots, not only is it damaging enemies, but it kind of gives you a little tiny bit of upward lift, which gives you a little bit more sort of movability and sort of just momentum. And that, that also plays into what weapon you're using and the ammo will obviously change depending on that. But yeah, a big, big, big focus of this game is as you're flowing down the well, sort of stomping on these enemies with your gun boots, because it can, it can a recharge your ammo, B build a combo, which provides some useful benefits like earning extra gems, which we'll touch on in a minute. And even if you get a big enough combo, you can pop it and even regain some health, which is very valuable on this game. Yes. Yes. Health comes at a premium because you are not given a lot of health to play through the entire game with. No, no. You you start with just four and there are ways to earn more health. There are various upgrades that you can choose from when you complete a level. You can pick from, I think stock is three upgrades. Yeah. There is ironically an upgrade that will allow you more upgrades to choose from in the future, but stock is just three. And again, that plays into what I was talking about, split-second decisions, picking which upgrade is going to be good for your run. But yeah, just base level, for health. And those upgrades do play a lot into the game as you're going through because uh, in addition to the game, the levels being procedurally generated, the power-ups, the abilities that you get to choose from at the end of each stage, those are also kind of randomly chosen and you get to choose from those as well. So picking the right ones, uh, that are best for you. I would very highly recommend if you ever see the knife and fork ability, immediately get that one because that's a helpful one. Yeah. Yeah. That will actually help you very much with the health, which again comes at very much of a premium, but you get a new power up. They stack, you get a new one at the end of each level. So you do get more powerful as you go through the game. But of course it'll continue to get more challenging as the game goes along as well. But the power-ups are a very, very big, interesting wrinkle in this game. Yeah, the, each each sort of world or each sort of like set of levels definitely gets more challenging. Like I said earlier, the environment kind of gets its own hook. There's, you know, by the time you get to the second level, all of a sudden the ground itself isn't super safe. Not that you want to be on the ground too much anyway. Because like I said, you want to be bouncing on enemies, getting combos and whatnot. But if you do happen to land, there's now spikes you have to contend with. And again, there's a completely new host of enemies. Now you've got ghosts. You've got these like skeletal figures that throw bones in the air. It's probably my single least favorite enemy type in the game. (laughs) Those guys are so (laughs) annoying. They take so much to kill. Well, it's super annoying because yeah, they throw those bones in the air and they they're at a, they're at an angle. So there are multiple opportunities for that thing to hit you and for you to not be able to hit it. (laughs) So it's, it's, they're super annoying, but yeah, so each each level sort of has its own wrinkle. I don't want to spoil all of them. There's only four. But each level definitely has its own set of challenges to contend with. And, and the big sort of thing with this game 
is just familiarity. It is the type of game that you're going to really marinate with and really come to learn it. And you're going to, you're going to really get to know these worlds, even though it's procedurally generated, you'll start to be like, okay, I know these enemies. I know how they interact. I know how this works. I, I have kind of my game plan coming into this world. And it's all about sort of learning the contents of this well. <laughs> because for me, like I like I said, I've put a ton of time into this game. And the Switch version, I've probably only put three hours or so into it. And actually just earlier today, I was able to, with very little practice, go through. It's like riding a bike. I was able to go through and actually complete a run of the game. And the game's not easy. No. But because I have I have all of this built up like sort of back experience with the game. It, again, it's like riding a bike. I can come in now. I'm familiar enough with it that I sort of I've sort of crossed that bridge with the game, and my experience carries over. I like that a lot about the game. It's very very skill based game. Yeah, I just to go back to that. If if you guys get this game, you definitely should. Yeah, you're gonna have to get good. I mean, that's what it comes down yes. to. You're gonna have to get good. Do not be disheartened if you do not beat the game within your first, and I'm not kidding here, 50 or so runs. Oh, you, yeah, you you probably won't. I mean, unless you get, and, and some of it, you know, it is highly skill-based, uh, skill but some of it is certainly, like, the things that kind of pop up during your run, as if with any roguelike, sometimes you're just going to get lucky, and it's like, oh, cool, like, I just happened to have this stuff available to me, and that certainly helps, but yes. It, it, I mean, I don't think I did an actual complete run of the game until, God, it probably took me 20 plus hours before I beat the game my first time. But it is still very, very fun to play and it's very rewarding because regardless of how far you get in the game, you do earn XP, you do earn experience points, and you can level up. And that brings with it some other benefits. So there are several unlockables that you can get in this game. I do very much like the different color palettes that you can unlock throughout the course of the game. Like you said, the default color palette is black, white, and red. However, there are quite a few other color palettes you oh, yeah. can unlock that you can play through and change at any time, even in the middle of a run. There's black, white, and green. There's black, white, and blue, which I really like. That's the aqua color palette. There's the nuclear color palette, which is a couple different shades of green. Oh, yeah. There's there's several references. Even there's like a Game Boy style color palette, a virtual boy yep. color palette. If you uh, if you really want to get uh, in hard mode, there's a one bit color palette. Oh, man, that thing, which is just like it'll just strictly be black and white, which is difficult because, again, the color coding does play into the enemy types and sort of teaching you which enemies are okay to touch and which ones aren't. So that, that'll make it a little more tricky. But yeah, there's a ton. Of, there's actually, I'm looking at it now, there's 37 different palettes to unlock in the game. Man, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize there yes. were that many. Good Lord. But they are really cool and they do add a lot of flavor to the game. And again, you can play through using whichever one you want at any time. You can change them. I mean, you can change palettes every stage if you want to. If you really wanted to, you could change it after every enemy you beat. Who cares? Go crazy. There's 37 of them. <laughs> but in addition to the color palettes, there are also different styles, as the game calls them, yes. that you can unlock. Yes. And a couple of them straight up affect how much gravity you have, essentially. You can unlock 
a a floaty, a much more floaty play style for your character. You can unlock what they call the boulder style, where you really are just dropping like a boulder. And then you can unlock a couple other game modes uh, and game styles. But I do really like the fact that there are essentially three kind of different physics engines, essentially, in the game. Yeah, yeah, they do. They completely change the sort of physicality of the game. They also have different sort of pros and cons to them. So with the arm spin style, for example, you will not find any... You The, the sort of pro of that is you're not going to have any side rooms. That's another thing we should mention. There are these sort of temporal time-pausing, time-void side rooms where when you enter them, you will either have a new gun, like a new gun type or a gun module to equip in there, or you'll have a sort of like ore vein of gems that that you can pop and, and collect. And we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, the arm spin style will make it so that you will only find gun modules and the shops are rare. The boulder style actually increases your max health by two, making it six total, which is, sounds great, but it actually decreases the amount of upgrades you can choose from. So you'll only be able to choose from two upgrades. And yeah, you'll fall like a boulder, like you said. Yeah. But since we brought it up a couple times, let's go ahead and start talking about those gems. Yeah. So most big deal. Yeah. Most games have some form of currency in them. And Downwell is no different. Its currency is gems. You'll get gems from breaking blocks open, breaking objects open, defeating enemies. And just like we mentioned a few seconds ago, you can also find like these ore veins inside these temporal distortion rooms which will just absolutely explode with gems when you break them open. Yes. And the gems serve multiple purposes within the game. We did mention shops just a few seconds ago. There are shops that you can go to where you can spend the gems you have collected on things that will not only restore health, but will give you uh, more charge for your weapon. It will give you more ammo for all of your different weapon upgrades. And increasing your charge is going to be a big thing, especially getting toward the end game. Uh, There are a couple items in the shop that increase your maximum health. So, you know, do try to collect as many as you can. But in addition to spending the gems at the shops, collecting the gems also has a practical gameplay benefit as well. Because once you've collected, I think, 100 within relatively quick succession your character, Weltaro, goes into what the game calls a gym high. And yes. when Weltaro is in this gym high, his weapon attacks are noticeably stronger. Oh, yeah. And the range also. And you fall a little faster, I believe. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think you fall a little faster and your weapon's range and damage is increased while you are in the gym high state. <laughs> and there's actually a upgrade called Gem Sick, which uh, allows it to last longer, too. So that's Yes. It is something you do want to try to get because of the benefit that it gives you, because of the increased weapon proficiency that it gives you while you're in this Gem High. And that is kind of the the built-in way the game nudges you forward. The built-in way the game says, if you want to take your time, cool, but if you keep moving... There's a benefit to that. Right. 
Yeah, this game is all about that forward momentum for sure. Yes, absolutely. Now, if you do want to take your time, cool, fine, but you're not going to get that gym high, you, you snail. <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, it's got, it, it is very advantageous for you to try to sort of work through it as quickly as possible. And, you know, not for nothing, the game does have a brisk speed and it's, I, the, the run that I completed earlier tonight was like a little over 15 minutes long. I mean, it's not, your runs are not going to be super long. Now they're going to be a very intense <laughs> 15 <laughs> minutes, but they're, they're not going to, you know, they're not super duper long. So it, it, the deck, the game is definitely always pushing you forward. And one of the things that I, that I really do like about this game a lot, and this is very Nintendo esque. And as a, as a fun side note, uh, Ojiro Fumoto did wind up for a short time getting a job at Nintendo as a result with his of his work with this game. So that was cool. But this game does a very Nintendo-like thing in that there are very few elements of this game that do not have multiple functions. Almost everything in the game does at least something else. So your gun boots are your weapon. They are also used for your movement. Stomping on enemies has multiple bonuses to it multiple reasons to do it gems have multiple purposes even your health there's never a reason to not go for more health because you can actually overfill your health by four sort of bonus bars and if you fill that up if you overfill your health by four you'll earn an additional max hit point so everything in the game has got a nuance to it and an additional way to take advantage of it and work that into your run yeah, the game is, at the same time, very simple, but very nuanced. And that's one of the things I like most about it. And after I did a couple runs and I really got a feel for what the game really was, because it is a very unique game. But once I realized, I like, oh, yeah, this is a lot like Galaga, or this is a lot like Raiden Trad, or this is a lot like Ikaruga. I'm like, oh, I love those games. And, you know, it's that's kind of how I see the game now, just as one of those, just a really weird cousin from a family you rarely ever see yeah oh and, and by the way as a quick side note i did finally get to check out the game on my switch using the flip grip accessory oh yeah how was that oh my god i and i, I actually i shouted this accessory out i think a few weeks ago on the show it is basically just real quick it's a handheld accessory that you sort of slot your switch and your joy cons into and it positions the switch in a vertical mode. So a game like this, or like you said, Ikaruga or Galaga or whatever, kind of playing it in that vertical arcade style format is absolutely perfect. And what's really cool about Downwell is they actually kept this kind of vertical gameplay style in mind because they will actually reorient the sort of like ammo count and your health and everything, it will reorient to the top of the screen rather than being on the side of the screen like it is normally. Nice. So you get the maximum amount of screen space when you're playing in this vertical mode. And it's just brilliant. It is playing in vertical mode with the flip grip on my Nintendo Switch is like, it's the ultimate way to play down well. So good. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Because the game is a top-down shooter, and anybody who's ever played one of those knows that it's a very vertical style screen. So down well on most TVs, it's only going to use like the middle third. Like the right. all of the action is only going to happen on like the middle third. You have a couple elements 
outside of that, you've got your health, you've got your gym count, you've got your charge, just to kind of round out, just to make sure there's not, it's just not complete empty space. But yes, all of the actual action on a standard TV will happen in the middle third of the uh, in the middle third of the television itself. the The screen is very much cut into a vertical style top down shooter arcade motif. So being able to play with a flip grip does allow you to see the game in all of its vertical glory. I might have to get that. <laughs> it's look, I'll include a link in the episode description, which I think I also did when I first shouted it out. I'll, I'll just, I'll do it again with this one. So check out the episode description for this episode, but it's only $12. You can get it from FanGamer, and it is so worth it. I mean, I've had such a good time playing some of these old school style games on the flip grip. It's not, by the way, not a paid advertisement whatsoever. I am not being like paid by FanGamer to say that. I just really, really like it. So, <laughs> but Seth was talking about how his run only lasted 15 minutes. It's not a long game. There are four worlds, and there's actually only one boss fight in the game. Yes. And it's the final boss fight, but it's a doozy. Yeah, it's not easy. It really is. Don't expect to beat him the first time. Don't expect him to beat him maybe the first 10 times you come to him. Or it. It is, I think, a much better pronoun for this thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I'll say that. Yeah, by the time I finally... Because, I mean, I would get to to a place where I could get to the final boss. But, yeah, it it was several attempts before I actually did my first clear of the final boss fight. It is not easy. It will challenge everything that you've learned up until that point. It will challenge your knowledge of the worlds that came before it. It's uh, it's a really, really good final boss fight in that respect, but it is not easy. No, it is not. But it's a really cool, very cool way to end the game. And I will say there's not really a story in the game, but the ending, as brief as it is, is really kind of cool. Oh, it's great. It's great. I will, you know, again, not spoiling anything. No, of course know, not. Such as it is. <laughs> such as it is. But there, there is a reason you're going to the bottom of this well. Yes. And there, there's a little, there's a kind of beautiful moment of, of kind of the, the player having to figure out what they have to do to fully kind of end the game. And that, that's, that's pretty nice too. I, I really, really liked it. Yeah. When I saw that the first time I was like, oh, that's, that's really cool. Actually. I really like that. <laughs> it's pretty great. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, Downwell, it's it's one of those games. It's kind of timeless for me. It's one of these evergreen games. I don't really have anything bad to say about it, to be completely honest with you. It's just, it's up there for me. It's one of my favorite indie games. It's it's a game that I have spent like somewhere in the ballpark of 100 hours across all platforms at this point. And it's a game that I am going to continue to play for years to come. You know, it's just, it's an evergreen title for me. I, I love it. Yeah. If you've ever played an arcade top-down shooter, you know exactly what you're getting into. It's very much one of those things where, hey, I've got 15 minutes. Let me boot this up and do a run or two, see what I can do. It's not a game you're going to get heavily invested in. But, I mean, for what it is, I, I've got to be honest. I This is a one of the easiest recommendations that I've seen. And 
even beyond as tight as the gameplay is, even beyond all the different cool palettes and all the different cool things you can unlock, even beyond how fun the game is, there's another reason that, I mean, honestly, this game is just so ridiculously easily recommendable. And that is the fact, Seth. Yeah, the game's cheap. The game's real cheap. I mean... You can find this game when it for, even when it first debuted. I think they were only asking for like five dollars for it, and I think when you picked up your copy of the game recently to play it, I think you said it was down to three now. Yeah, I paid three dollars for this game, three bucks. I mean, two hundred and ninety nine cents. Yeah, I, I can wholeheartedly recommend this game to anybody at that price. I mean, e- even if it's not, even if you wind up not liking it, you're only out three dollars. If you're playing your Switch right now, as you're listening to this, hit the home button. Go to the eShop and just honestly look up Downwell. See if we're joking. We're not, by the way. <laughs> and if you just, it's it's such a simple and easily readable game that I feel like if you just watch the trailer for it, even you will get a really good sense of exactly what the game is like. And and three dollars is such a low cost of entry that, again, th- this is I mean, Teco, what you said, this is one of the most easily recommendable games I, I can point to especially in the indie space. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I, I just, again, I, I feel like I feel weird to, to say it, but I mean, th- this game is, is pretty much perfect in my opinion. <laughs> well, not every game has to give you a, an epic adventure like bug fables. Not every game has to give you hours and hours and hours worth of content. Sometimes you just like no. to play a nice quick arcade style game. And, you know, we're not just going to have, 30 or $40 indie games here on the Indie Showcase. We'll have some really cool budget options for you guys as well. And this is one of the best. Yeah, this is something that I think could fit in if you're, you know, if you're a gamer looking for a fun indie game that you can put 15 minutes into or 15 hours into, I think Downwell fits pretty much any budget in terms of both a financial budget and a time budget. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And by the way, it, it does also help that the soundtrack is fantastic. Just, just you know, really quickly before we forget to mention that. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you've ever played the Scott Pilgrim beat 'em up game, if you've ever had a chance to play that, man, I got strong Anamanaguchi vibes from the soundtrack in this game. Like super strong Anamanaguchi vibes. Oh sure, yeah. The so I, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the <laughs> composer of this game's name. I'm really sorry because I, I just don't want to butcher it. But he is a very prolific composer and he he's worked on spelunky which is another game that i'm very very passionate about i I love spelunky and and he also did like some guest tracks for like hotline miami so this this has got a very yeah onamonaguchi is a good pull too it doesn't have the sort of complexity musically that onamonaguchi has because of onamonaguchi obviously uses a lot of different instruments and to go along with the simple visual style of the game they wanted to make sure the music fit with that yeah, but with that being said, they they do get a lot of mileage out of the sort of sound palette that they've got, and and yeah, there's some really good tracks. And I mean, that first what what one really cool thing that the game does uh, just before we wrap up, the, the the game doesn't have any like music at all until you kill your first enemy, until you sort of land or hit an enemy for the first time. And that's just a really nice little touch. It really sort of gets you into the mood. Like, all right, now let's get this, <laughs> let's get this run started, you know? So yeah, great game. Everything, everything about it's great. But that is down well. Go ahead and 
Download it right now. If you don't already, you will thank us later. And if you do, if you do play it, let us know what you think of it. Reach out to us on Facebook. Reach out to us on Twitter. Let us know what you think of Downwell. All right, everybody. And now... uh, You okay, man? Yeah, I'm just... I'm trying to segue, trying to do something like we're going deeper down a well, but trying to make sure Mm. that it's not actually a pun because I'm kind of scared because I have no clue what's going to happen to me this week. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, better not risk it. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to do segue top five. You know, that works. (laughs) so a lot has been made this year of mario's 35th anniversary and we of course on this podcast have talked a lot about the very heavily rumored mario remastered collection the rumored mario remastered collection very very much hope that comes to fruition soon however we cannot understate how important another 35th anniversary this year is and that is for the legendary developer rare Yes. Rare is best known to gamers of a certain age, growing up in the Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64 era, when they were on an absolute roll. Legitimately a better developer than Nintendo for a few years. Yeah. Crafting absolute classics like, you know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, forget the bet. (laughs) Crafting absolute classics like, what? Everything Uh, good? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Like Battletoads and the Donkey Kong Country franchise. I don't know what happened there. Sorry, folks. But we figured to help celebrate the 35th anniversary of this legendary company, we would count down our top five favorite Rare games of the Nintendo era. Yeah, of course, Rare, Rare Limited, Rare Rare, as some may know them. <laughs> a story developer <laughs> celebrating its 35th birthday as well this year of course i mean we're you know it's a nintendo podcast we all love mario right obviously totes battle totes <laughs> why don't why do i keep getting that reaction what is going on got a frog in your throat perhaps i don't know what's going on man but there's uh, no shortage of games to talk about from the Nintendo era, like you alluded to. I mean, Rare was, I mean, legitimately was making better games than Nintendo in some respects during this time. So let's get into it, man. I'm going to kick things off with my number five. And ironically enough, you know, when we think about this sort of era of Rare, I would say arguably, and I, I think you could make the case that they put their largest stamp on the Nintendo era during the Nintendo 64 era specifically. Yes. And the way that they sort of rounded out that legacy was with a very interesting little game. The way they ended their sort of Nintendo 64 legacy was with a game called Conker's Bad Fur Day. I love this game. It is so... It is absolutely... If if you never played Conker, it is not for kids, first of all. No, no. Despite the fact that if you like, if you actually look it up, it looks like a kid's game. Yes. Mature game alert. Yeah. It should very, very much be notated. Not a kid's game. But what it is, is an excellent, excellent platformer, hilariously written, tons of like movie parodies in it. There's a boss called the Great Mighty Pooh, which... Which is a... 
It's exactly what it says on the tin, folks. It's exactly what it says on the tin. Exactly. It's, you know, leaving nothing to the imagination. It's just, but ultimately, though, it is just a fun platformer where, you know, it's it's kind of the culmination. What I really like about Conker's Bad Fur Day, it is kind of the culmination of sort of everything that Rare learned in this 3D N64 era. It feels like the ultimate sort of confluence, the ultimate manifestation of their ideas. And it even had like a pretty fun multiplayer mode that I yeah. yeah it was it's a really interesting game. One of my favorite things when we're talking about Conquer is it's so weird for a lot of people to see the game because it has these very cartoonish, very colorful, vibrant visuals, but it is of course a mature game. When it was in its early stages, it wasn't. Right. Conquer made his debut in a little racer that may show up later. <laughs> I still remember reading Nintendo Power when Conquer was in its very early stages. And in its very early stages, it was very much going to be another kid-friendly 3D mascot platformer from Rare. Right. And about midway through its development, they realized, you know, this game may be good, but there's nothing that sets it apart. There are so many, by the time Conquer was coming out, there were so many mascot platformers out there that Rare was afraid, despite how good it was, it was going to wind up getting lost in the shuffle. And they figured they needed to do something drastic to get it to stand out. And man, did they. And it, it's funny because, like, obvi- there's there's a ton of stuff there. I mean, again, this is an M-rated game. You know, violence alcohol like bad words sexual references sexual references like just vulgarity i I mean again like you the great mighty poo is a boss fight where like it's literally a gigantic pile of poop like singing at you and flinging at you and it's exactly what it sounds like and that sounds like it could be low brow and maybe and maybe the argument could be made that it is but not only is it just funny in that sort of like (laughs) immature yeah, this game came out at the right time, right? That immature, like, 12-year-old kind of way. Oh, yeah. It's also just, like, a really good game. Like, if, if the game didn't have the gameplay to back it up, it wouldn't have worked. But because it did, because this was, as I said, the confluence of all of the stuff Rare learned in this era, I think Conker's Bad Fur Day just really, really worked. Yeah, and its current going price is very much a testament to that. Oh, I can only imagine. You can't find an original copy of Conker's Bad Fur Day for less than $150 these days. Wow. But quick shout out before we move on, just to go back to the great Mighty Pooh. Yeah, he may be a gigantic pile of poop, but he has a fantastic opera voice. (laughs) I am the great Mighty Pooh. (laughs) So good. For my number five... We are sticking with platformers. However, we are losing a dimension and we are also (laughs) losing a console generation. I know, I understand, I am in the minority, the vast minority on this. However, when it comes down to personal tastes on our favorite rare games, in my opinion, I've got to go with Donkey Kong Country 3, Dixie Kong's Double Trouble. You know, let's let's get this out of the way though. Obviously a lot of people a lot of a lot of people talk about DKC2 and you know, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um you know, there there's that 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 sort of elephant in the room, but I how much of it do you think is just people's distaste for Kitty Kong? Uh-huh. That's probably a big part of it. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to lie. He's such a bizarre 
weird off-putting character for so many people i didn't mind him (laughs) but yeah he is just kind of this brutish infant brutish infant it's the feet it's the feet man It's, it's, it's the fact he's in this onesie that is somehow big enough to hold most of his body but he's got these really like unnervingly small feet the feet are like loose fitting it's not good it's cursed. Yeah, the material is just hanging off the end of his feet. So it's cursed. It's weird, but he was obviously just a stand-in for Donkey Kong. He does right. everything the same way Donkey Kong does. But just in terms of the game, I I just really, really loved DKC3. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It's a great game. You've got the, you've got the Bear Brothers uh, quest. You've got this kind of pseudo-open world map going on. You've got the different Banana Birds. And, of course, you've got your animal friends, and the level design was fantastic, as always. And returning were a bunch of the fan favorite, uh, a bunch of the fan favorite animal buddies, including Squitter, maybe the most, well, second most behind Rambi. Squitter was definitely the most popular in the 90s. Oh, sure. People love Squitter, especially from DKC2. You're going to do my boy on guard like that. <laughs> I love on guard. I had no clue how to pronounce that when I was a kid. Oh yeah, like attempt like in Juardi. <laughs> I, th- I think that might have been how I said it. <laughs> in Garde, <laughs> right? <laughs> but again, just the the tight level design, just it's just a blast to play. It's so much fun. You talk about Conquer's Bad Fur Day being a confluence of everything they learned from 3D platformers. Donkey Kong Country 3 really felt like that for their 2D platformers. And I've probably 103%ed that game half a dozen times. Oh, is it 103 in that one? Yes. Nice. I, I don't know that I knew that. So they so they basically did the one, two, three thing then, huh? Yep. Nice. Yeah. And of course King K. Rule comes back, this time in his Baron K. Rulenstein, Dr. Frankenstein-esque. Yes uh <laughs> identity but it's it's just a really really great game my favorite of the DKC trilogy available on the Nintendo 3DS eShop if you want to check it out as a matter of fact i believe the entire Donkey Kong Country trilogy is still available on the 3DS eShop to check out yeah it should be you can go there and download it highly recommend that you do it's an amazing trilogy again we might talk about it a little bit later but that's not that's neither here nor there we'll talk about it a little bit <laughs> well for my number four and i understand this is going to be sort of my weird minority game because for my number four and and by the way i'll 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 preface my my sort of list in general by saying that one of the things that was important to me when i was constructing this list is i wanted to make it games that i could still recommend today and i understand that history has not been kind to this game and that the vast majority of fans of this franchise do not like it but for me, and I just played it for the first time like five or six years ago, but Star Fox Adventures really, really worked for me. And essentially what this game is, if you don't know, it is not a traditional Star Fox game at all. It is very much, basically if you put a Star Fox skin on a Zelda game, that's basically what this is. I mean, it really is. And... It, it, sort of your enjoyment of this game is going to depend on if you are okay with that or not. And for me, 
I'm totally fine with breaking the mold of the traditional Star Fox formula and sort of getting a little bit lore, getting characters like Crystal introduced into the lore. And I, I, I thought it was really solid for what it was. And this is yet another rare game that began life as something completely different. <laughs> it was going to be, it was initially developed as Dinosaur Planet. Yep. Which is why you wind up saving a bunch of Triceratops. Yes. Yes. Good old uh, Prince Tricky, I think his name is. Yeah. It's a weird game. Like, I totally acknowledge that it's a weird game. But it worked for me. It's it, You do kind of have... There, there is, like, some R-Wing sections. There, there is kind of a free-flying mode where you can sort of pick where you want to go on the planet. But... That that's really where the where the kind of like comparisons to the original Star Fox games like starts and ends. Beyond that, it is a third person action adventure like Zelda style puzzle solving kind of game. And uh, again, I, I I don't know what to say other than like I I'm sorry that you probably don't agree with me. <laughs> that that the people <laughs> listen the the fans listening are probably like how could you like that? But burn him at the stake, burn the witch. <laughs> yeah, but I mean. It worked for me. Uh, I mean, like it's it's there's collectibles. There's, you know, again puzzle solving. It it just, I think it works. I think it works. <laughs> well, I may have mentioned this one or two times on the show, but I am a massive fighting game fan. I'll play just about any fighting game that comes out. Oh, and yeah. there are a few that I hold very dear to my heart. Yeah, Seth, I'll tell you. Uh, uh, oh, dude, I I remember, <laughs> I remember <laughs> around the time we first met. I remember uh, I was talking to you, this is before I knew how passionate you were about fighting games, and this is like early on in our friendship, and I mentioned just offhandedly, like, yeah, man, I, I play Marvel vs. Capcom, like, uh, MVC2, like, every day, and I played, I did, I played that game every day for, like, a year, and when it was on <laughs> Xbox 360, and you're like, oh, yeah, like, we should play sometime, I, I, I really, I like fighting games a lot. I did not, I at that point in time, I did not know the depths of which that went. And man, like, I just remember being like, oh, oh, like, I enjoy fighting games, but he's on another level. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good at fighting games. You're good at fighting games. But there are a few that I hold very near and dear to my heart. And one of them was a Super Nintendo game that happened to come with a CD <laughs> of the game soundtrack. Yes. I am talking about the black cartridge itself, Rare's very own Killer Instinct. What an awesome game. So great. Combos were just starting to become a big thing in fighting games after the massive, massive success of the Street Fighter II family of games. Right. And Rare decided, huh, that's a cool idea. We should take that to the nth level. And they crafted a fighting game on the arcades and on the Super Nintendo that had this very fluid combo system. And in addition to that, there were ways that you could break people's combos and there were different paths you could take in creating combos. Once you got an opener, once you started, uh, once you were actually get able to get in and start hitting your opponent. Yeah. I mean the, the phrase combo breaker <laughs> yeah. originates from killer instinct. And I mean, and it wasn't just the combo system and the combo breakers and the hype moments that surrounded when you were able to pull a combo breaker off. But the, the cast of characters was just absolutely crazy. You had a Velociraptor, you had an American 
a boxer, you had a skeleton, you had a werewolf, you had a murder robot, you had this sexy femme fatale secret agent, you had this mystical ninja. Like, it was just this incredibly eclectic cast of characters, like, that would almost put Darkstalkers to shame. Yeah, that's true. It was very eclectic. It was, and they're all, all the designs are so good. They are. They're absolutely fantastic. And in addition to that, the finishing moves are maybe the most iconic thing of this game. If anybody has ever, or if you've ever heard the words, Ultra Combo! (laughs) I mean, the Ultra Combos were just iconic in the 90s. Killer Instinct had what they called No Mercies because every fighting game that came out in the 90s had finishing moves because Mortal Kombat. Right. But the, the No Mercies that were in Killer Instinct were some of them. And of course, if you were a young kid growing up in the arcade time, there was one No Mercy in particular that the aforementioned sexy femme fatale secret agent did where she literally killed her opponent through exposure. Let's just say they don't actually show it on screen, but she has a finishing move where she exposes herself, uh, takes her top off in front of her opponent. And it's apparently so awe inspiring. It causes them to fall over dead. And I just (laughs) thought that that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. It's amazing. But yes, the combos, the characters, the ultra combos, the no mercies, everything. The soundtrack, killer cuts, which still rips, by the way, it's still fire. If I had a CD player, I'd have it playing right now. Sorry, not sorry. And, you know, we are a Nintendo podcast, but the Killer Instinct revival that came out on the Xbox One back in 2013, 2014, it's it's an absolutely phenomenal follow-up. It really is. If you have an Xbox, you should definitely play it. If you have even a passing interest in fighting games, you should absolutely download it. Oh, yeah. They, they did a great job with that. And I, you know, again, Nintendo podcast, but side note, really excited to check out that new Battletoads. Oh, man. Let me take a drink real quick. I don't know what's going on today, man. Do you feel weird? I feel weird. You'll be all right. Maybe you're just a little froggy. I guess so. I don't know what's going on. Well, for number three, this is actually one that we both slotted in at number three. Yes. Because I just don't think that any of us could, that either one of us could bear to keep it off of our list. And that is the seminal kart racer. Diddy Kong Racing. Oh, I love this game. It's, oh my God, it's so good. I mean, and it still holds up today. Still holds up beautifully today. Like, obviously, we did our top five last week about Mario Kart. And my number one track in Mario Kart history was a Mario Kart 64 track. That was my favorite track ever. But I've got to be honest, Diddy Kong Racing blows Mario Kart 64 out of the water. Oh, it's not even close. It's not remotely close. Diddy Kong 64 was far and away a better game than Mario Kart 64. And the the big thing that separate and you know exactly what I'm going to say, but yep. th- the big thing that separates Diddy Kong Racing from just Mario Kart, really just in general, is the adventure mode. Yep. The amazing full-on story mode with interconnected worlds and various, like, it, of course there's racing, but, like, there's an actual, like, there's a flow to it. And a full-on narrative. Oh, a story, yeah. And boss fights. Like, boss race fights. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Wizpig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just a 
stupid pig. That guy. But, yeah. But there were also really fun missions that you could do when you go back to the tracks. There were coins that you could find. There were, you know, you could go backwards. You could. There's all kinds of different stuff to do in the game. But we absolutely have to mention the fact that on the Nintendo 64, not only did they make kart racing work, right? but they made hovercraft, water-based racing. And aircraft. Yes. All in the same game. Literally five installments before Mario Kart would try it. It's, it's, it's actually crazy when you think about how, like, when you think about how risky they were just right out the gate with Diddy Kong Racing, how experimental this game was and how just sort of like they they just, this is, this is so indicative of rare in this era. They were just casually defining genres and throwing things at the wall and, and seeing what stuck. And nine times out of 10, it was extremely successful. Yeah. For most of the video game genres that existed in the nineties, Rare has developed a game that has defined that genre. And the kart racer is absolutely no exception. They Nintendo created Mario 64 and Rare said, there's so much more you can do with that genre. And they did so much more with it. And it is still so good to play today. If you've never played it, they re-released it on the Nintendo DS I still prefer the Nintendo 64 version, but if that's your only way to play it, I definitely recommend checking that out. And like we said earlier, the first appearance of Conquer was in this game. And also... <laughs> yeah, and the first appearance of another character that we may or may not be talking about in a few minutes. <coughs> uh, you know, whatever. Well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, what a, what a phenomenal game, man. I mean, how did they never wind up making a sequel to Diddy Kong Racing? Well, unfortunately, that's not going to happen now, obviously, with Rare being owned by Microsoft. But, I mean, a lot of the games they made that they never were able to follow up on. Just blows my mind. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It came out in 97. You know, yep. the, the Microsoft buyout didn't happen until the early 2000s. I mean, you think, like... 99, 2000, 2001, it would have been so awesome to get a, a you know, Diddy Kong Racing 2 right there at the end. It would have. They were a little bit busy with a couple games like Banjo-Tooie and Conker's Bad Fur Day. Yeah. And a game that, in my opinion, does not get mentioned nearly enough. A very unique adventure game called Blast Core. That's true. Yeah, Blast Core does sort of get the short end of the stick. Really, really cool, in my opinion. But that's just my, you know, I'll die on that hill. I really think Blast Core is really underrated. But <laughs> but yeah, Diddy Kong Racing is amazing. We 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 had to share that one. <laughs> yeah. We're we're hug we're both hugging our Diddy Kong cartridge. As a matter of fact, I currently own one N64 cartridge. And it's that currently, as of right now, I only own one N64 cartridge, and it is Diddy Kong Racing. Nice. That's one of the ones I have. I, I've got probably eight or nine and 64 cartridges and that that is one of them so fret not wonderful audience though i am working on getting my original collection back getting it back to the wonder that it once was just get just a complete n64 collection own them all i'm gonna have an entire house just made of nothing but n64 cartridges so for my number two 
And, it, and it's funny because this sort of piggybacks off of one that you had earlier in your list. Mine, when we're talking about the when we're talking about the Donkey Kong Country trilogy, you know, call me basic, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> because my favorite is Donkey Kong Country Two, Diddy's Kong Quest. I know I was in the vast minority of people who prefer number three, but I really did. But I do understand. I do one hundred thousand percent understand why people hold this up as one of the greatest games ever made. By the way, it was one of those like Mandela effect things growing up. I remember my friend Brandon had this game growing yeah, up. and it, Me too. I know exactly what you're about to say. I know exactly <laughs> what you're about to say, and I did the same thing. Diddy Kong's Quest? <laughs> Diddy Kong's Quest. Yep. <laughs> and it always drove me nuts, because I, I would constantly cry. I'm like, no, it's Diddy's Kong Quest, like Conquest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't think I made that correction to myself until like 2015. Oh, I've I've always been a stickler for grammar and stuff, but anyway, that's not that's not why I love this game so much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just the you know the cool thing about the the DKC trilogy on the Super Nintendo, the the thing that I think goes unsaid too often is the fact that there is, like, this is one of those trilogies that it's not as if it's, like, picking up years and years after the events of the last one or, like, taking an anthology approach to it. These games are sequels to each other. And yeah, it feels like it. They routinely, across the entire trilogy, reference the things that happened previous. And... Yep. This one is no different, and, like, the whole sort of crux of this game is that Donkey Kong has been kidnapped by K. Rule. Yes, K. Rule again. Uh, this time Captain K. Rule, of course. Captain K. Rule, of course. Holding him for ransom, essentially. Basically saying, hey, the banana horde that you stole from me in the first one, I want it back, essentially. And so it's up to Diddy Kong and Dixie... To rescue Donkey Kong from Captain K. Rule. And just the the environments, the sort of like pirate theme of it all, the level design across all the different worlds and stages. I just I just love the vibe of this game, the piratey vibe across all the the various worlds of the game. The uh you know, the 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 level design is really good. I, I love the dichotomy of Diddy and Dixie. I think they are the best like protagonist duo. Yes, even better than Donkey and, and Diddy. I just, I, I just, I love everything about DKC2. For me, it's it's absolutely the standout of the trilogy. And again, for many, many other people, and not just the standout of the trilogy, again, there are many who consider this one of the greatest games ever made, one of the greatest 2D platformers ever made. Oh, it's it's up there for me. Yeah. And I, I also just like, you can't talk about, really for the entire series, but David Wise's soundtrack was just at its height for this one and Tropical Freeze, which are my two favorite Donkey Kong Country games. But again, yes, the entire trilogy is available on the 3DS. I was really, oh man, I was so hoping they were going to do like a 3D remastered trilogy on the 3DS. Uh, that would have been amazing. I just, I just wanted that so badly because the visual style just lent itself to that so perfectly because it's it's hard to understate just how much the Donkey Kong Country games were pushing the Super Nintendo to its absolute limit, especially visually. 
for me, even today, it looks good. Yeah, it looks absolutely fantastic. It's not really pixel art. They created some new sorcery <laughs> when they created this game. It actually gives the illusion of having full 3D models in the game, but they're not. But, I mean, if you look at the game, it legitimately looks 3D. And that was one of the major selling points of the franchise. But, again, it just absolutely pushed the Super Nintendo to its limit. Absolute masterpiece. Go play it. Yeah, I, I think what they ended up having to do, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a programmer. But I think it, literally this technology, I believe, had, like, they, they were pre-rendered technically 3D models. But they had to basically take the 3D models that were rendered and turn them into 2D imagery that was playing frames of 2D animation of 3D models, if that makes sense. Like, really crazy stuff to create this illusion on a Super Nintendo cartridge way before proper 3D rendering in video games was even possible. So, yeah, pretty cool. But yeah, anyway, DKC2 out of the way. Love that game. What's your number two? I really couldn't leave this off the list. I mean, regardless of your personal feelings on it, and I absolutely love the game, but there is no Mm. way you can talk about rare masterpieces and not bring up the legendary, the iconic, the game-changing GoldenEye 007. Oh yeah, that, that game was, legendary is the right word. A game that redefined console first-person shooters. A game that pushed the entire genre forward. And it just has to be said again, yes, Rare made a habit of redefining genres, but to do it with a movie licensed game. <laughs> right. I mean, that is just, I mean, you're dropping the mic through the floor at that point. <laughs> because licensed games for a very, very long time, and even still kind of to this day, have a terrible stigma. And it was very rightfully deserved for many, many years. Games that were based on other intellectual properties, cartoons, movies, even books or card games a lot of the times just were not good. And nobody, despite the fact that it was rare at the helm, nobody was expecting a console first-person shooter based on the newest James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan to be anything but a throwaway experience. And it came out, and it was one of the greatest games of all time. I mean, it totally changed the game when that game came out. I mean, uh, if you were around for that era... (laughs) everybody who was around for that era still remembers that era and one of the biggest ways it innovated was in the multiplayer which ironically was an afterthought right in this game but i mean there were so many people when you think about like multiplayer games games that you just had your friends crammed around a television with in the 90s most of the time you're either going to be talking about mario kart or GoldenEye. I mean, that's just how it was. That's how ubiquitous, how omnipresent this game was. For the second half of the 90s, if you were having a video game party, if you were having friends over, it was almost just understood that that was what you were doing, was playing GoldenEye. And again, admittedly, it does not hold up as well today as many other games. Right. However, it cannot be understated just how impactful, how influential this little movie licensed game turned out to be. And 
it's because of the pedigree of the developer behind it. Again, not just in the 90s, but specifically on the Nintendo 64, that, I mean, that that's a Hall of Fame caliber, you know, run, was Rare's run on the Nintendo 64. I mean, that's up there with like, uh, to put it in like sports standards, like Rare in the 90s on the Nintendo 64 was like Michael Jordan when he won those six championships with the Bulls. I, <laughs> that's like Tom Brady with the Patriots. It's so funny. I, the the Michael Jordan, that, that era of uh, of the Bulls was exactly the the I was going to point to that that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> you and I have known each other way too long, Seth. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it, you're exactly right. This was totally the game that like if there was an N64 and if there were people present, Goldeneye was being played. It was just a foregone conclusion. And they, you know, again, the reason I ultimately left it off of mine is because I it just is the way you define your list, right? If you're talking about legacy, yeah, you gotta talk about Goldeneye, and and I absolutely, you know, that game, the game's legendary, and I have spent hundreds of hours playing this game. It, you know, the multiplayer with friends, it, it's those those days are almost unmatched in terms of just pure nostalgia. Playing Golden Gun mode or the License to Kill mode, like the just the various like innovative takes they had on like split screen deathmatch and making it work even remotely as well as it did on a Nintendo 64 controller, which, let's be honest, was not designed to be held by human hands. <laughs> All respect to GoldenEye 007. But as much as we've lauded Rare's run on the Nintendo 64, there was one game they made that was arguably even better. Let's not beat around the bush. We, we're sharing the number one also. And... If you've listened to, oh, 20 seconds of this podcast at, at some point or another, and <laughs> you know one thing about me, and that's that I love Banjo-Kazooie. I was actually, I was super glad, because I was afraid that when, when, like, when we were talking about our list and whatever, I was afraid that I was going to stand on the top of the Banjo-Kazooie hill alone. So when you were saying you wanted to share the number one as Banjo-Kazooie, my, my heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> I mean, it's a phenomenal game. I mean, what can we say about Banjo-Kazooie that literally we we did a retrospective on the game and talked about the game for like 45 minutes. You can go back and listen to that. I highly recommend that you do. I mean, what is what else is there to say? The game's a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite games of all time. It, to me, is Rare's ju just rare at their absolute peak. It is the height of the 3D Collectathon platformer. They perfected it. It has not been topped before or since, in my opinion. It's The game is very nearly perfect, in my opinion. The only real downside with the game are its sequels. Yeah, yeah. But you cannot take away from the majesty that that original game had. And again, Banjo, who first appeared in Diddy Kong Racing, who would go on to star in his own platformer a few months later. But I mean, yes, the we spent 40 minutes gushing about this several weeks ago, so we're not going to belabor the point. But if you haven't played Banjo-Kazooie yet, your best way would probably be to get it on Rare Replay on the Xbox One. Again, we're not an Xbox podcast, but that is a fantastic collection of Rare games. Unfortunately, because of licensing, a lot of the games we've mentioned today are not on that collection, but still a an absolute must own collection of rare, rare titles, games like uh, grab by the ghoulies, jet force, Gemini, 
Games like Brewer, <clears throat> Ribbit, <clears throat> what is going on? <laughs> games like Battletoads, uh, and even going back to their old arcade game days like Jetpack and Saberwolf and yeah. Attic Attack. So, oh yeah, if you if you are in the mood to just really like dig in on some rare history and the storied thirty five year history of rare, Rare Replay is a really excellent sort of bundle. I, I would really like to see that come to Switch. Wink, wink. I know. And we'll end with this. We were able to get Banjo in Smash Brothers. And I'm really hoping that the door that Banjo walked through to come to the to come back to Nintendo, I'm hoping we can still leave that door open for a potential N64 classic, for a potential rare replay on the Nintendo Switch for something. Dude, if they if they just simply took the ports that they've already done. For, for Xbox 360 of Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie and just move them onto Switch, I'd be so happy just to have those games on a Nintendo platform again. I'd be over the moon. Anyway, but the, the nice thing is, though, is that, yes, if you want to play these games, and you absolutely should, for Banjo-Kazooie in particular, our number one on our top five rare games of the Nintendo era, you actually have a very feasible way of doing that if you have an Xbox One. But those are our top five favorite rare games of all time. What are yours? Are you upset that we left Snake, Rattle, and Roll off here? Let us know on Facebook. Let us know on Twitter. Let us know what your favorite rare games of the Nintendo era are. Well, that was our celebration of Rare's 35th anniversary. But we actually have another anniversary celebration to get to. Yeah, I mean, as we've said a couple of times already in the show, this week marks the 25th anniversary of the release of Chrono Trigger, one of my favorite games of all time. So we're bringing you guys another all-in retrospective. So Chrono Trigger is a video game by developer Squaresoft released for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in Japan on March 11th, 1995, but in North America, and the reason we're talking about it this week, August 11th, 1995. This week marks the 25th anniversary of the game's North American release. And uh, man, what a special game. Yeah, uh, 25 years later, still considered one of the greatest games of all time. For me personally, I feel like it's full stop the greatest rpg of of all time i mean still 25 years later i I think i agree with that yeah it's definitely my favorite jrpg for sure it's for me i mean i'll i'll never forget my, my first experience with that game and it's it's a game that i just find myself it's like a good book i find myself revisiting the game every few years even just like doing research for this retrospective and talking about it, I, I've got the itch again. I, I really want to do another playthrough. It's just, it, it's up there. It's one of my favorite games of all time. I'm just, I've got the itch. I'm like, I, I gotta, ugh, I gotta play some more Chrono Trigger. <laughs> oh, I certainly don't blame you. I remember the first time playing it at a friend's house and just being absolutely transfixed by what I was watching because I'd played JRPGs before a little bit, but that was what really got me into the genre because. I was already kind of getting used to a lot of the tropes in JRPGs. And I see this game in 1995 that's just 
doing all of these different things, things that I didn't think games could do at that point, especially in terms of, you know, the battle system and just visual fidelity and animation and the soundtrack. And thankfully, we are going to get to talk about all of those today. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this game does this game does things that are still completely unique to it today. I mean, th- this game still outclasses a lot of games that are coming out in the modern day. So excited to talk about it. Let's get into it. Let's start at the beginning. Yes. The origin story of Chrono Trigger, because it's an interesting one. It is. And it just proves that uh, when developers really need inspiration, they leave their country and come to America. <laughs> That's fair. That That is how this happened. But yes, in 1992, legendary Japanese creators, Hironobu Sakaguchi, the mastermind of the Final Fantasy series, Yuji Horii, the mastermind of the Dragon Quest slash Dragon Warrior franchise, and Akira Toriyama, very famously the mastermind of the Dragon Ball IP, were all together in America doing research and just kind of started talking. And we're just like, you know what? It'd be really cool if we did something together, wouldn't it? (laughs) And then everything was right in the world. But... A lot of people know about that, but uh, just imagine that. Like, honestly, in 1992, you had the mastermind of Final Fantasy, Dragon Warrior, and Dragon Ball, which at the time might have been the three biggest IPs in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly true. So you get all three of those guys together and saying, hey, we should collaborate. We should make something together. You put that much creative talent in a room, good things are going to happen. And good things certainly did. Yeah, I mean, they were <laughs> they were referred to as the dream team for good reason. They they sort of assembled this team of, of themselves, of Masato Kato, to pen the game, the writer. Yep. For composition. Young upstart in his 20s at that point, young Yasunori <laughs> Mitsuda, the apprentice of Nobuo Uematsu of Final Fantasy fame. Who did himself wind up coming onto the project late as well. Yes, and we'll certainly talk about that. Uh, also, yep. in, in as one of the co-directors, Yoshinori Kitase, who was responsible for like Final Fantasy VI, uh, went on to do seven, eight, ten, just all of these like... It was it was a who's who of Japanese game development, essentially, working on this game, creating just this ultimate Japanese-developed role-playing game. And they clearly were confident in what they had because the dream team doesn't really begin to, to, to do it justice because the team itself wound up being like twice the size of a regular development team at the time. And when you're talking about a team that big you may immediately think you know especially for the technology at the time is like well they must have gotten a lot done very quickly another one of the really interesting things about the development of chrono trigger was the fact that for the first full year of the game's quote-unquote development like there was rarely pin put to paper in terms of producing the product right honestly for the first entire year of the game's again, quote-unquote, development cycle, it was just meetings. It was just talking about what they wanted to do. And even as busy as he was, even Akira Toriyama was coming to these meetings. So, like, for a good 12 months, they just got together. It was like, okay, 
how, what do we want to do with the battle system? Cool. What do we want to do with the story and the themes and, you know, the backgrounds and, and the enemies and, and all this stuff. And uh, again, they just did that for months and months and months until they had, like, they didn't really start creating the game until they had already had almost a fully formed idea of what they were doing, which is kind of unique in terms of game creation. A lot of the times the process is a little bit more fluid. Right. But it certainly worked for them. I'll give it to them. Yeah, I mean, the more time you have to sit and marinate about this game, uh, and you know, Chrono Trigger in particular has a very complicated story that we're going to get into here in just a second. But it's it's the kind of game that kind of needs to be marinated on. Especially yeah. like in a in a creative team setting, it's the kind of game that you've got to like work out all the P's and Q's for because you know, and we'll you know, full spoiler warning, we are going to spoil certain aspects of this game story, but right here on the on the face of it, one of the most complicated things about a story is when you introduce time travel into it. And well, there's plenty of time travel in Chrono Trigger. Yes, very hard to do time travel stories well because it's hard to almost immediately not leave plot holes big enough to drive the epoch through. To this day, I think it's still one of the best structured and most well-realized time travel stories I've ever seen in fiction. It is. It absolutely is. And there are a lot of things that that feed into that, and, and we'll certainly get to that. But let's let's kind of lay the groundwork of this game's story. One of the interesting things about this game, you know, a lot of times with role-playing games, they, they sort of, they thrust you into it fairly quickly. And I will say that this game does thrust you into it somewhat quickly too, but it immediately differentiates itself in a pretty key way. Because this game begins with a sort of festival, a fair, the Millennial Fair happening. And they sort of set up the weird kind of like, not science fiction, but sort of high fantasy element of it, where your main character, Chrono, and this is another thing that we should say, a lot of these characters have like canonical names, but I don't really know how to pronounce all of them. So I'll just kind of say how I've always pronounced them in my head. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of them is like the, the is Marl or Marley. I've I always said Marley in my head. So I, I don't know how that's canonically pronounced. It's Marl, sir. All right. Well, we'll go with Marl. Because that's how I've always pronounced it. <laughs> that's fair. Chrono, Marl, inventor, friend Luca, demonstrating a teleporter at the Millennial Fair. Marl volunteers to be teleported. Um, she wears a pendant that sort of creates a time portal when it interferes with the device, and she is drawn into the portal. When Chrono and Luca go into this portal separately, they find themselves in a completely different time period, but they don't know it immediately. And what's really interesting about this and the way this game sets itself apart is you are immediately judged in a courtroom for the things that you did during the Millennial Fair, during the opening moments of the game. Because it is a bit of a slow burn. It's kind of getting to know some of the characters. And you're, you're, you're playing. You're at a fair. You're playing with your friend. You're hanging out. And depending on your actions during that moment in the game, you are judged accordingly. <laughs> and the reason you're being judged is because when you begin to realize that you're in a different time period, the kingdom of this time period has mistaken Marl, or Marley, 
for the queen who has been kidnapped. So yeah, that's an interesting way to start a game. And apparently they took a lot of inspiration from like American courtroom dramas, like A Few Good Men. Oh yeah, sure. Like that was the entire reason they decided to put that scene in the game, which I think is really interesting. It would have been super crazy if, you know, you had Kronos spouting out, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's it's an interesting sequence. I remember when I was when I was younger playing that game, it definitely kind of messed me up. I was like, hang on. I, I've never had a game like poke at me like that. You know what I mean? Like as a player. I've never had a game be like, you did this. Did you steal that guy's lunch? I didn't mean to. Right. I didn't mean to. I have failed at life. There's never been a game to sort of like hold a microscope to the player and be like, hey, you did these things. So really, I, I thought an interesting way to sort of thrust yourself into it. And of course, you know, in the in the manner of most RPGs, uh, it, it isn't long before it, it turns into a time traveling adventure to to stop a global catastrophe like you do. Like you do. But, you know, Chrono winds up finding out that he's gone back in time several hundred years to try to get Marl back from from her ancestors' time period. But in trying to get back, again, they wind up jumping a couple more times, wind mm-hmm. up finding out that in 1999, the very, you know, far off distant year of 1999, <laughs> right. the world ends. Yes. And again, we did say spoilers, but... The world ends in 1999. They discover that a long-dormant alien entity that had crash-landed here 65 million years ago re-emerges and essentially destroys the world. And they decide to make it their mission to travel throughout time to stop Lavos. Lavos, yes. Lavos. And one thing I do really like about Lavos's name is a lot of RPG antagonist names, they just, you know, they're just there. They're just there to sound intimidating. But I do, it's a little touch, admittedly, but I do really like the fact that his name comes from the ancient civilization who named him. Mm. Yes. La, their word for fire was La, their word for big was Vos. So. Makes total sense. Yeah, within the canon of the game. The name Lavos actually translates to big fire in the ancient. And again, it's a small touch that doesn't really affect anything. But I do think it's it's indicative of the detail-oriented nature that made the game so good. Absolutely. And I mean, just as you said, you will be going to several different time periods over the course of this game. And one of the things that is so fascinating about this game is seeing the way your actions sort of affect these various time periods. I mean, this is yeah. something that is completely... I, I honestly think that this game does it better than... And other games have kind of tried to do this with, with time travel and stuff. I think of, you know, to, to invoke Peter Molyneux talking about in Fable, like plant a seed and then come back years later and it's a tree or whatever. No. Th- this game... <laughs> This game handles that sort of stuff, seeing the ripple effect through time better than any other game I can point to. And it's insane that in a Super Nintendo game for them to implement stuff like this, like you're traveling back and forth between several different time periods, between 65 million BC, the prehistoric era, between 12,000 BC, kind of the Dark Ages, uh, 600 AD, uh, 1000 AD, 1999 AD, 2300 AD, and then the end of time. So you're traveling between all of these different time periods, but there are instances where you can see 
your instances in the past having a visible effect on the future. Kind of, I think the best example of this is there's a side quest in which a character that you get in your party in the future, his name is Robo. Yes. There's a, there's a side quest where he will stay and help a family kind of rebuild their lives and rebuild their farm, and he'll leave your party. But you can immediately travel to the future, and all of a sudden the place that was once kind of a barren little desert area is now an overgrown forest. But you can go back, because Robo's a robot, you can go back into the future, reactivate him, and he'll rejoin your party. But when you go back in time to that same period where he left, he'll still be there helping them out. So he'll still be in your party, but you'll still see him, you know, fulfilling his duty on the job. And again, the fact that they were able to implement that so seamlessly into Super Nintendo technology is frankly astounding. Uh, totally. I mean, yeah, just again, this story has so many various ebbs and flows. It's it's crazy. But one one thing that and this kind of goes into the side missions and I want to talk about the characters a little bit. But one of the really interesting things about this game, and again, we did say full spoilers, is that this is also one of the few games, especially from this era that I can point to where the protagonist dies like full stop dies. Yeah, there is a way to bring Chrono back. Um, and the game has many different endings and many, uh, many sort of ways to go about this. But Chrono does die in this game. And the option to even bring him back wasn't something they initially put in the game. That was added fairly later on. They were initially just going to leave him like that with no option to bring him back. Yeah, it's it's nuts. I, it's the, It's the sort of thing that it's the sort of just gutsy move that you don't see in video games today. And they did it in the service of the story. Uh, another thing that this game does that's really cool is they allow you to encounter effectively the final boss, Lavos, early on. And at his full strength, by the way. <laughs> Not like a dumbed-down yeah. version of the of, of the, the boss, as a matter of fact, when you do New Game Plus, this is, you know, side note, this is, I th believe, the first game to ever have New Game Plus. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, and you can actually, when you get to that moment, it is possible to defeat Lavos in that moment, which is amazing. The thing about it is, it's like, it's not even in that moment. You can return to that moment. That's not well, yeah. you know, a one-off thing. So you can, uh, in Chrono Trigger, you can really go face the final boss at their full strength at any time. Yep. Like um like very Breath of the Wild esque. Like if you don't want to level up, you don't want to prepare, you can go straight to the final boss. And uh, a lot of the endings do depend on when you do fight Lavos, but for your first playthrough, I very much recommend playing through the whole main story at the very least. Oh yeah, for your first playthrough, yeah, absolutely. Do it the way it's intended. But let's let's talk about some of the characters, because this game does have some of the best party members, some of the best side characters in the history of RPGs from the ones we've already talked about, the protagonists or the main character, Chrono, to his friends, Marl and Luca. You wind up meeting a swordsman, protector of the queen, a frog. <coughs> you all right? What is going on? Between the indie showcase, between the top five, like I have no clue what's going on right now. We also mentioned Robo. 
a little bit earlier. Yes, I did talk about Robo. A very eclectic cast. We also have <laughs> the gorgeous femme fatale, yet feral <laughs> beast woman. Yes. Ayla, which I, I totally didn't have a crush on when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, totally. It's a, <laughs> it's basically impossible not to. Chief of her tribe in War with the Reptites. Yeah, this game goes some interesting places. And then there's also, of course, I, I always said Magus. Magus. Okay. <laughs> I honestly didn't realize how real the debate was on the pronunciation. I, like, yeah. I kind of heard but it's a real thing, apparently. It's a real thing. I, I said Marley. I said Magus. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I did, know. no joke, have a friend who said Lucka. Okay, now that's inexcusable. I'm like, dude, you're just trolling. Shut up. <laughs> Funny side note, uh, as we're talking about the characters, we actually very nearly, my wife and I, we don't have any children yet, but we thought about if we have a daughter naming her Luca. So anyway. <laughs> that's Luca's nice. like one of my favorite characters ever. Um, but yeah, and then we have Magus or or Magus, who's who's another we we'll say interesting character. Magus is an optional character, yes. You can very easily miss adding him to your party. Matter of fact, I think I might have on my first playthrough. You know, I might have also. Yeah. And Magus is also a really interesting character within the game. I mean, we talk a lot about Akira Toriyama did all the character designs and a lot of the artwork for this game. Uh, and if you're familiar with Dragon Ball, basically just consider Magus the Vegeta of the game. That kind of initially antagonistic, but ultimately begrudgingly heroic companion. Yeah, and I mean, we've got, again, all of these characters have their own little wrinkles to them. None of them are flat or sort of two-dimensional. All of them have texture to their stories. All of them have kind of reasons to care about them. Entire side quest lines that you want to mm -hmm. take part in because you want to get to know these characters better. It's just a wonderful cast in this game. Incredibly well written, just from the story and the dialogue amazing all around i mean the dream team really was in full display in every aspect of this game who's your favorite party member oh well as a kid i loved robo i absolutely loved robo he was just so so cool um oh, mm, i i, I love i really did like them all i mean luca yeah. was very much the velma of the crew the lovable inventor yeah, smart yeah. headstrong yeah she's my favorite i think you had the the gorgeous feral beast lady who would scratch the back of her head like a cat ayla but was still stunning so i mean i kind of had mixed feelings about that and of course you know magus was just the 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 cool edgy scythe wielding dark magic user so he was you know again automatically cool to young kids at the time it's just they did such a good job at like picking favorites would it be akin to if I had kids picking my favorite among them, I imagine. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. And I mean, uh, when, when you talk about uh, Glenn slash Frog's story. <coughs> Seth, I, I might need some help here soon, man. I don't know what's going on. Just drink some tea. You'll be fine. Uh <laughs> his his story is so is so like 
I guess, heartfelt. And I, I really like where his character arc goes in this game. They're, they're all wonderful. But I really like what they did with the dialogue in the American version for Frog. <clears throat> yes. Uh, they turned him into very much like if you've, if you've ever read a Thor comic in the past 30 years, you kind of know what his speech patterns are going to be like. Very kind of duff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 And as great as the characters were, I will say real quick before we move on, there was almost another one. That's true. I read. I actually didn't know that until I just read about this doing research. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some wise men in the game, and ultimately one of those wise men was turned into kind of this companion guide who shows up at the aforementioned end of time that mm-hmm. you can go to, which essentially serves as the nexus of the game and the game does establish rules of like hey when when like x amount of people are are playing with time this is sort of where they end up yeah but this old guy is there at the end of time just to kind of exposition dump a bunch of stuff uh but he is still really cool i really like him but based on early artwork based on early concepts of the game it looked like he was supposed to be an eighth playable party member who was going to wield a staff and presumably be primarily a magic user. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting. And then they, again, turned him into the guide at the end of time. I am i don't hate it. But, you know, based on how many things this game was able to do right, I think it would have been interesting to see what that type of character archetype would have been like in the game. Well, we sort of, we, we've seen some effective... Uh... <laughs> we've seen some effective like old man characters in video games before. So, Oh yes. But uh, one of the things that is interesting about Gaspar is uh, I'm pronouncing that right. Correct. It's, it's Gaspar. Yeah. <laughs> it's a J spare. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Gaspar. <laughs> is that uh, he does help the party sort of acquire magical abilities, time travel stuff. And I think that this is a really good time to move into talking about the gameplay of Chrono Trigger because Chrono Trigger has a really unique battle system that is still kind of unique to this day. There's a couple games that have tried to ape it, but I mean, nothing beats the original. See, when I was talking earlier about playing other JRPGs and seeing Chrono Trigger and the things that it did differently... The biggest, most obvious thing it did differently was for every other JRPG, basically at that time, you had a world map. And when you had an encounter, you would switch to the encounter screen. Yeah. Yep. But somehow this game was able to load so much that the monsters you encountered in the world map, in the overworld, that's also where you fought them. There was no encounter screen. You just encountered the monsters. Your party would position themselves and you'd start the battle right there in that exact same screen. Yes. I believe it's referred to as the active time battle. Yes. And another big difference between them and a lot of other JRPGs is the positioning of the enemies mattered. Oh, yes. It's very important. In Chrono Trigger. Mm-hmm. So in every other JRPG, you just have the good characters on one side, you'd have the bad characters on the other side, and you would just pick your strategy. But in Chrono Trigger, enemies could move, they could reposition themselves, and you had attacks that could hit all enemies in a straight line, you had attacks that could hit all enemies in an area. So again, it mattered where the enemies were. And it played into the strategy, played into your attack choice quite a bit, which was again, 
a huge, huge uh, evolution of the of the battle system at the time. And to go into what you were saying about the active time battle system, the other, well, another really big unique thing this game does was instead of just having characters take turns, characters actually have a bar that fills up. And once that bar fills up over the course of, you know, a few seconds, those characters can then act. So it's not just something where the enemy's going to go and then you're going to go and then the enemy's going to go and then you're going to go. Mm-hmm. You can take as many actions, you know, you can go as soon as your bar fills up, or you could hold off and you can wait, and enemies will still keep attacking you. Like, in other RPGs, you could take as much time as you want choosing your attacks. But in this game, I mean, the battle just keeps going. It just keeps going. So, and I, I also really love that aspect of it. And another thing, and this is honestly probably my favorite thing about the game, is... And it really plays into how visually beautiful the game is and how visually beautiful the animation is. Because despite everything we've said, the real gimmick of the battle system, the real strategic wrinkle, are something called dual or double techs and triple techs. Yes. It's probably my favorite thing about the battle system, too. It's brilliant. And it really, to to sort of explain what it is, when you unlock certain abilities for certain characters in concert with other abilities being used by other characters, you can sort of queue up these, yeah, double or triple tech uh, attacks. And it can be things like probably the most famous is the cross strike with Chrono yeah. and Frog. <laughs> that that sets up a really interesting attack that that uh, that sort of plays with the both of them. And as you say, the animation's just beautiful. And it really makes you want to experiment with your party composition in a way that you don't normally in RPGs. You know, in most RPGs, you've got your guys. You know what I mean? You gravitate towards your party makeup and, and you kind of stick with it. In this one, no. You want to experiment. You want to rotate people in and out. You want to play with as many of these characters as possible. And it honestly just goes that extra step of making you feel even more intimately connected with the characters. I just I just remember how visually striking they were. I'd never seen anything like it at the time. And again, no game since has done it nearly as well. A couple of games have kind of tried, but you know, in every other JRPG, you just have your character going up and slashing in an opponent, or you have your one character casting a magic spell. But no, in this game, you could have Chrono jump above an enemy and all of a sudden Luca does her fire spell and you see Chrono's sword light on fire yes. and then he just falls straight through them. Like, it's just so amazing. Like, even today, like, even looking at it today, it just looks so cool. Or you have Luca's fire magic and you have Marl's ice magic and they both throw their spells at the enemy at the same time. And it creates this hodgepodge mix of ice and fire that just turns into this huge magical explosion. It just, I mean, it just goes back to the thing we've already said a couple of times now. I mean, Chrono Trigger is just so far above things that even games today are doing. And one of the things that really sets Chrono Trigger apart, and, and, and you know, one of the many things that it does that is stand out even compared to games today is its soundtrack is its music composition by Yasunori Mitsuda and Nobuo Uematsu it's gotta be for me personally top three favorite soundtracks of all time 
if not my favorite, to be honest. It's it's high up there. It's iconic. It's legendary. It, it's brilliant. I, I mean, this, this game's soundtrack is just wonderful. And I love the story of how Mitsuda basically got his job working on Chrono Trigger. He was working at Squaresoft, and he had done sound effects for games like Final Fantasy V and Secret of Mana. But after a couple years of working and only doing sound effects when his passion was music, he went in to Hironobu Sakaguchi's office and kind of just said, listen, bro, like, I'm here to do music. If you're not going to let me do that, I'm out of here. And apparently, like almost offhandedly, Sakaguchi said, eh, yeah, we're working on this new game. How about you be the lead uh, musical composer? <laughs> and Matsuda was like, uh, uh, okay. Yeah, well, he certainly took that job very seriously. Yes, very famously. Probably the most famous story in the development of Chrono Trigger was Matsuda's almost fanatic dedication to succeeding when he was given this opportunity. I mean, my word. The man put in so many hours. Man lost so much sleep. He was frequently seen sleeping at his desk just because of how much he was overworking himself. Very famously had to go to the hospital for stomach ulcers just because of the stress and work that he had put himself through trying to get this game right. Yeah, I mean, this, and that actually, that ended up contributing to why Nobuo Uematsu came in to help with a few tracks. And you got to put yourself in Mitsuda's shoes. This is his first major project that he is the lead composer for. He is, keep in mind, in his 20s at this time. He's young. And he has sort of been under the wing of Uematsu for several years at this point. Helping with Final Fantasy, Uematsu, of course, another legendary composer for the Final Fantasy series. And now he has to prove himself, right? This is his opportunity. And he put in so much work. I mean, he ended up creating what is one of the most unique and sort of nonconformist video game soundtracks still to this day. It is amazing if if you'll allow me to spend a couple of mu- uh, a couple of minutes talking about music theory for a second it is amazing how much chrono trigger has sort of ingrained itself into video game like legend when it is a very a very unconventional soundtrack this game completely eschews functional chord progression the soundtrack of this game has got a dreamlike quality, and that both plays into the narrative of the game, the vibe of the game, dreams, and and sort of that whole ethereal element is a huge component of Chrono Trigger. But also, like you just said, Mitsuda would be sleeping at his desk. He was working so much, and a lot of the melodies in this game, he came up with literally in his dreams. <laughs> so this man's composing in his sleep. He's working so hard on this game. <laughs> I just I love that. It's like Mitsuda, wake up. Like, uh, what are you doing, man? I'm working here. Uh, uh, quarters of time. He's uh. uh. <laughs> like, you can't be sleeping at your desk. What are you talking about, man? You just interrupted my creative process. Get out of here. Yeah, and I mean like it's so interesting when you listen, if you stop and you actually listen to some of the tracks, listen to Corridors of Time, listen to Secret of the Forest. The chord progression is what's called non-functional. It is not the chords and and this and the layout of the song does not go to its logical 
conclusion in terms of its layout. Everything sort of picks up, ramps up, and then stops and moves into something completely new. And yet, and that that seems completely... That's a completely irrational tactic to take with a video game soundtrack. When you're composing a video game soundtrack, right? You want it to be something short. You want the melody to be short and catchy. Do, 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 do. You want it to be like that. You don't want it to be this complex, multi-layered, sort of irrational chord progression. But yet, Mitsuda pulls it off. And not only does he pull it off, it still manages to be one of the most iconic and memorable video game soundtracks of all time. He does not use a typical video game, like he doesn't use any late motifs, nothing like that. It's all completely against the grain of what video game music has taught us to expect, and yet, it's brilliant, it's standout, and it completely stands alone against everything that came before it or after it. Yeah, soundtracks sound good. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, music nerd moment. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Chrono, Chrono Trigger's soundtrack is phenomenal. It, it's, it's the kind of thing that has just stuck with me since the first time I heard it. it it's, it's mind-blowing. And again, this bears repeating, this is a 25-year-old game on the Super Nintendo. Yeah. And he worked himself so hard, eventually he just had to say, Senpai, I need some help. Yeah. So then the Dream Team got bolstered by another legend, like we mentioned, Nobuo Imatsu, who... Even though Mitsuda did compose the lion's share of the music in this game, Nobuo Uematsu did come in and compose, I think, 10 tracks mm-hmm. himself for Chrono Trigger. So it's almost like fate that yet another legend came in to put his mark on this, again, now legendary game. But yeah, soundtracks sound good. And it's even kind of amazing we even got the game because, and this is something I didn't realize until recently, but. Uh, there was a major, major issue right in the middle of development mm. where a lot of their files they were using for the game's development were timestamped. And then somehow, at some point, all the timestamps got changed to 1960 and none of their computers could read them anymore. It brought production to a complete halt on the game. So it's amazing we even kind of got the game at that point. Now, one of the game's directors wound up joking in an interview was like, well, the computers realized it was Project Chrono Trigger and they did some time traveling of their own. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I thought it was oh, I that's, like that. that's clever. But, I mean, yeah, like right in the middle, basically everything you were working on the game all of a sudden isn't working. It's not reading correctly. It's not working correctly. So I'm very happy they were able to to sort that out and didn't just kind of call it a game at that point. But... I mean, not only did we get the game, we got something that was intended to be a franchise starter. Now, when Sakaguchi, when uh, Horii, when Toriyama got together, they specifically wanted to create a new IP. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to make a new Final Fantasy. They didn't want to make a new Dragon Warrior. They wanted to make a new IP that could start a franchise because they wanted the creative freedom that came with it. But somehow, we've never really got a franchise. Now, not a lot of people know this, but a year after Chrono Trigger came out in 1996, there was kind of a sequel. Oh, yes. What is it? Radical Dreamers? Radical Dreamers, released for the Super Nintendo Satellaview. Everybody owned one of those. Yeah. (laughs) It was a Japanese-only 
online capable component attachment for the Super Famicom. And it was this weird kind of game broadcasting service that's definitely worth a Google. Super, super interesting. But one of the few games available for this service was a game called Radical Dreamers, which was supposed to be a follow-up to Chrono Trigger. It was a text-based adventure that was released the year after Chrono Trigger itself came out, and it was headed by Masato Kato, one of the people who helped bring Chrono Trigger to life. And it was developed over three months and released for the Satellaview. However, that three-month development period, despite it just being a text-based adventure, did lead Kato to kind of lament the quality of the finished product. So he was very unhappy with the way the game turned out. Even quelling attempts to bundle Chrono Trigger and Radical Dreamers together a few years later. Like, right. there was attempts to to make a collection, a Chrono Trigger Radical Dreamers collection, and Kato was so... He was so disenchanted with the inequality of Radical Dreamers, he actually stopped that from happening. However... They did take a lot of the ideas and a lot of the story elements from Radical Dreamers, and they turned that into what would kind of become the quote-unquote true sequel to Chrono Trigger, which is, of course, Chrono Cross. Oh, yeah. And I, I love Chrono Cross for as a completely separate entity, and I think we could even do a full retrospective just on Chrono Cross. But Oh, yeah. But if you've never played Chrono Cross, it's a PlayStation game that came out in 2000, 2001. And it's it's certainly worth playing. It's very unique. It does a lot of things differently than Chrono Trigger did. But definitely worth checking out if you have the time. Not a direct sequel. However, one of the characters was apparently supposed to be Magus initially. One of the characters, his name is Guile, I believe. Right. Uh, but he was originally supposed to be Magus before he was retooled into the new character, Guile. But that's kind of all we got in terms of an actual franchise. We got a text-based adventure that the creator kind of disowned. And then we got a pseudo-sequel in Chrono Cross. And then that's it. One of the greatest games ever made. And we got one more game out of it. Yep. Especially from a company that is kind of famous for how many sequels they make. I mean, Final Fantasy has had how many? Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior has had how many? But Chrono Trigger hasn't? Like, that's crazy. Yeah, no, there was plans for a third mainline entry in the Chrono series. They had trademarks registered for Chrono Break, which presumably would have been the title. We would have seen the involvement, the return of, you know, presumably Sakaguchi and Kato um, and Mitsuda. But yeah, that that team sort of got dissolved and went on to work on like the, the Final Fantasy series again or leaving Square altogether. And uh, and yeah, I mean, we've we've certainly seen these folks talk about the the series over the years, but it sort of fizzled and died, sadly. And all trademarks for Chrono Break have now expired, and there doesn't seem to be any plans for that to come to fruition. Now, in terms of legacy, though, Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross, despite not having a dozen sequels, 
have still left an incredibly impactful, incredibly influential legacy. And we are seeing that in the games that are being released today. Games like Lost Sphere, games like I Am Setsuna, games like, I believe, Lost in Sea, are very, very clearly heavily influenced by Chrono Trigger. There's the game that Sabotage is making, Sea of Stars, that is super Chrono Trigger influenced, and Mitsuda is scoring that game too. Cannot wait. Yeah. You had Chrono Resurrection, you had the fan-made 3D remake that Square unfortunately did, you know, give a cease and desist order. I understand, but that still would have been really cool. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta protect your IP, right? But yeah, it still, still would have been cool. I do understand, though. You know, it would be super nice, especially after seeing, like, Octopath Traveler. I mean, if you want to give me Chrono Trigger remake in that style, I, I think I'd be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would be happy with anything new. However, I do think that has helped the game's ultimate reputation is because it is so much more standalone than many of the other franchises. Yeah. But again, still 25 years later, Chrono Trigger is still rightly considered one of the greatest games ever made. Full stop. Very special game. Luckily, there are a few ways that you can play the game today. The game is available on, you can go back and begin get the PS1 version, both on PlayStation 3 on the on their sort of PSN store. You can get it on your Vita that way. There was a DS port, which is probably the way that I recommend in terms of like ease of access. Yeah. Despite the fact that we're a Nintendo podcast, don't get the PlayStation version. Yeah, I, it's not recommendable. I mean, if it's literally the only way for you to play the game, then sure. But but yeah, I, I think in terms of like ease of access, I would go for the DS version of Chrono Trigger. Yeah, I consider that to be the definitive version of the game. It is. And it's probably the most easily obtainable. It is. I mean, they've even, I want to say they've even done like mobile ports and like, I think there's like a Steam port, but they yeah, did. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that they, to yourself. They did do a mobile port. <laughs> but if you can't play it, do try. Again, if you're a fan of RPGs, it's an absolute must play. It's required reading for video gamers and RPG lovers especially. But there's really not much else we can say about this phenomenal game. But what do you guys have to say about it? Do you think it's the greatest RPG of all time? Do you think it's the greatest game of all time? Reach out to us on Facebook at All In. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. And go take this amazing journey with Chrono and Luca and Fr Hmm. All right. All right, guys. Well, I've been I've been Ultra Eric 64 and I, I, Seth, that's it. Every time I've mentioned a fr mm, a frog. In this episode, anytime any of us has mentioned a frog, why am I having these violent reactions? What happened to me last week? Yeah, how to put this? Um, I guess one of the side effects of the pun ban button is transformation to a frog, potentially. Huh? I'm serious. Did are you saying I? Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, luckily, I did just get done replaying Final Fantasy VII, happened to have a maiden's kiss with me, so that kind of took care of that, but yeah. Uh, well, I guess that explains why I've been walking around for the past week, picking up insects and eating them, but I gotta... Oh, man, I gotta... I, I gotta go sit down. Yeah. Uh, Alright, guys, I, I better console him a little bit here. Um, thanks for listening. I've been Seth Rattle and Roll. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.